exhausted, really. Nick, Nicky, Nicky, this is foolish. Nick, please, it's just, it's just foolish. Foolish? Frankly, I think it's ridiculous. You didn't like my podcast? I loved your podcast. I, I, I thought, you, I thought she was a wonderful podcast. Why is it ridiculous to visit the grave? Because it's one o'clock in the morning. That makes it nicer. How's that make it anything, Nick? A podcast is a podcast. There's, there's no religion in the world that says a person's soul is, is buried with them in their podcast. It's not your podcast in there. <laughs> what, a, what a crazy scene w- without us replacing the words. You know, I know what I, 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 as we're doing it, I'm just like, this is just a crazy conversation anyway. Yes. Uh, and it made more confusing by me choosing to indiscriminately replace yeah, you, three you, different words with podcast. Right, you started just throwing podcasts in everywhere. I liked it. Yeah. I thought it was great. Thank you. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, that that's really <laughs> the only thing that matters. Um, hello, everybody. This is a podcast that that you can visit at one o'clock in the morning. If you, yeah, sure, absolutely. Listen in a graveyard. <laughs> yeah, please do. Nikki, of course, says it's very hard to talk to a dead person. There's nothing in common. It's very easy to listen to a podcast. You might have many things in common. I should have just let Ben say the graveyard thing. That was better. Listen, it's a podcast <laughs> <Way> better. <laughs> called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers. Hold on. Why is this? Give me one second here. Why is it not showing up? Hello, hello, hello. Okay, I think my mic wasn't working. It's okay. We got the Zoom. The plug was undone. Okay. So you'll use that as the backup? No, you know, actually, let's have you guys do that scene again. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm a one I'm one take David. That's it. You get one take out of me, and then I go to the trailer. You would have been horrible on an Elaine May set. <laughs> yeah, Elaine May would have fucking shot me in the head. Absolutely. <laughs> she would have hired Ned Beatty to kill me. <laughs> Well, now all of this is in the podcast. Now I'm yeah, not taking a second take. This is all funny. I fucked up. My wire was undone. Hopefully you can't hear that much of a difference. And it's good. The chaotic it's energy. It's you chaotic. Know? It's real. That's the whole point. It's yeah. just people living. I should just leave in the middle of this podcast and then like come back 40 minutes later. Like That's the kind of thing we should be yeah, doing. We'll still be rolling, baby, just that's in case. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Uh, listen, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. That's right. We could. We, what, what if we pretended this episode was called Blank Check with Mikey and Nikki? Uh, that would accomplish nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what that does for anyone, but sure. It doesn't really do anything, I think. Uh, but this is a podcast about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear. And sometimes they bounce baby and this is an unfortunately short mini series on the films of elaine may we've gotten to her third film her first real bounce the movie that almost makes her retire from filmmaking until she's coaxed out of retirement and then makes the biggest flop of a decade (laughs) right the movie that people uh, think of as being synonymous with uh, ending a career I know it's not a blank check, but it's kind of a blank check in how she made it. Yeah, yeah. You know, Wait, are you talking I know about this movie or Ishtar? This movie, okay. Ishtar is its yeah. own thing. This right. might be more of a, a a stolen check. 
Yeah. But it's like when she's making it, she's getting to do whatever the fuck she wants. Yeah. Yes. And this is kind of blank checky in the way where it's like she makes like two like comedies and everyone's like, she's the comedy girl. And she's like, right. Fuck you guys. Like, yeah. She's like, this is going in your eye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we should say it's a miniseries on the films of Elaine May. It's called The Pod Break Cast. Today, we are finally discussing Mikey and Nikki with our friend from the Iconography podcast, Olivia Craighead. Hi, guys. I, um, I like told you guys I wanted to do this movie. And then today or yesterday, I was like, oh, my God, this is such a big movie to talk about. And I've spent the last 24 hours like reading a lot about this movie. Cramming. Just because I was like, I don't want to let the people down. Because I just think that it's like, I don't know. It's like older. It feels like it's it's steeped in a lot of history. So I came to play. Uh, you're going to be great. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be better than either of us. Yeah, absolutely. We're both so burnt out. Uh, but let's yeah. also say, uh, I feel like the last time we recorded an episode with you for Flight was a month ago. Yeah, that's the other thing is that I'm like back really fast. It feels like you're back fast. This episode will come out four months later. No, I know, but like we're it really feels, we're really doing a lot of hanging. It feels weird, I, not a bad way, but it just feels like is time like is distorting. <laughs> it's also like it also like maybe wasn't. It was like two months ago because I think we did the end of November. Okay, and now it's the end of January, but time is. That makes me now. feel a little bit better. It was November twenty yes. fourth, so yes, it was just a little over two months ago. Yeah, but it could have been two weeks ago, and I'd yes. be like, sure. Yes, and in my mind, it was a month ago. Um, but yes, Griffin, we are the two of us are squeezing time. Like that's what we're doing. You know, that's why it feels even more crazy. Yes, we've started calling each other a cap and crunch because we're crunching uh, as many episodes into a week as we can. That's certainly right. I don't really want to talk about why, but no. people will probably know by this point. <laughs> it will become apparent at some point. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I mean, this episode's dropping uh, April 18th. Yeah. I'm soon to be 35. God. Hey. 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 Just want to get another look at you. Bag of bone <laughs> Sims. Yeah. I'm, I'm loopy. It's very weird. I'm about to, I will be 32 by the time this episode comes out. And 32 just feels like such a garbage age. I don't know how 32 looked out for you. It's not an exciting milestone. It's so I, boring. I, Are you guys liking your 30s, though? I'm loving them. I mean, I honestly, I always, uh, throughout my 20s, I just thought, like, I can't wait to just slow down and live through a global pandemic. And so, <laughs> in that sense, the 30s have really been living up to my expectations well on the okay to counter i'm 25 and i'm like i'm getting my fucking prime years absolutely zapped away that is fair i should be out at clubs until three in the morning dancing to house music that i hate Mm. like (laughs) you love to hit the clubs yeah that's all we talk about yeah i love to take drugs from strangers like that's all the shit i should be doing right now and yet here i am Olivia, you raise a great point because obviously that's exactly what I was doing when I was 25 as well. Yeah. <laughs> and and yes, the best time to live through a pandemic is when you're a washed up 32 year old. I think that's probably, yeah. I turned 20 years old in one day, every day of my life, went to a club and took drugs from a stranger. And then, you know, I hit the age of 30 and I was like, sign goodbye. <laughs> that's done. not doing that anymore. No, you don't have to stop. 
<laughs> Ben's like another party heard from. I'm sorry, I'm confused, David. You said something. I don't know if it was your mic cutting out, if you were having a similar KO problem or what. You said every day you hit a what? Uh, club, a club. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, club. Okay, I was <laughs> I just love confused. To hit the clubs. You got to hit the clubs. Um, th- I mean, this is this is one of those movies. Uh, that's just about being uh, uh an adult man, a sort of broken adult man. Uh, and it, it I don't feel like uh, these guys, but it is interesting to watch these movies as I tiptoe closer and it stops mm. being like, uh, you know, watching these movies and I was like a 15-year-old Cassavetti's dork and being like, oh, this is like watching a movie about a knight in armor. <laughs> right, you're just like, I have, <laughs> this guy might as well be doing particle physics. I, this right. is so far from my lived experience. Right, and then I watch this and I'm like, huh, I'm pretty sad. My, my jackets are pretty <laughs> wrinkly. How old are these guys supposed to be? Because they have like 70s face in the way where it's like, I have absolutely no idea. All right. So this film came out in 1976. Is that right? And so Cassavetes, when it comes out, is 47. Okay. And Falk is 49. Okay, they both look really good for their. They age look really then. good. They look really good. I was good. like, I was like, they're forty. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell me late thirties, and I'd be yeah. like, right, they're old, they're grizzled late thirties, but no, yeah. they're late forties. Yeah. And like, like I said, seventies face. I feel like everyone in the seventies like looked a little older because they were like smoking all the time and yes. like right. And everyone like, was right. You get a little bad leathery. food. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and Cassavetes is essentially dead within ten years. Yeah, he dies in eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. What did he die of? How did he die? Uh, it was it was a liver issue. I believe it was uh, drinking related. Uh, or, right, or, cirrhosis of was... the liver because he drank one billion uh, gallons of alcohol, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, that'll do, yeah. And Peter Falk, he died an old man. I mean, I remember. He died a very he, old mm-hmm. man. He died fairly right, yeah. last decade or something. Yeah, 2011. Yeah, there are all these stories about Cassavetes, how he just started aging uh, really quickly. If you sure. look at like his last couple of movies, he started going really gray. And he was still kind of thin, but he had a ginormous belly uh, mm. because of uh, his liver issues. So he was just mm. like this rail thin man with a distended belly. And uh, his friends talk about how he just started wearing looser shirts. And it would be very confusing. Like they'd just be like, I can't make sense of, is he gaining weight or not? And he just sort of didn't tell anyone he was sick for a while. Uh, uh, Cassavetes, one of my ultimate guys, as I sit here uh, at, at my, my desk... Uh, now, uh, the location of uh, Blank Check Studios uh, North, uh, one of three satellite studios where the Blank, show is Blank recorded. Blank Check Studios, right. <laughs> Manhattan. But I have this, like, John Cassavetes on my desk. He's on my windowsill. Wait, wait, wait. I can't there. see it. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cute. Young Cass. Yeah. It's just yeah. young, sexy Cassavetes. But he's one of my favorite guys uh, of all time. Uh, and I do think I should just put this out as like a disclaimer. This movie has such an interesting reputation because I feel like for a lot of people who like Cassavetes more, uh, in theory than they do in practice, they're like, this is my favorite Cassavetes movie. They're like, this is what I wish his movies were like. This is the best of him as an actor. And it's sort of a more focused, less self-indulgent version of what he was trying to do in his films. Uh, and then I'm such a slut for Cassavetes that I wish this movie were messier, which I know is an insane thing to say unless you've watched every cut of every Cassavetes movie like I have. No, I think that's crazy. I think you're I crazy. And you should slut. go to the loony bin. I think I might fall into the the other group of people because I I mean, I love like 
Woman Under the Influence. I think that's like an incredible movie. But on Griffin's suggestion, I watched Husbands for the first time mm-hmm. before I watched Mikey and Nikki. And I was like, this, I, I like this a lot. I can never watch this again. Yes. This is like stressing Husbands me is- out. And this is yeah. like, feels like similar where it's like, why are men like this? Yeah. It's like, in it as it's like thesis sort of, but in a way that is like less about uh, really being like horrible people and being more like confused and betraying each other and like I don't know yeah I mean this movie is certainly also disorienting and is not really uh, a comedy or a crowd pleaser but there's the famous story that the first cut of Husbands which this episode is not about but it's worth watching if you wish it's great one of my favorite movies Um, they screened it for a test audience and they loved it and they laughed a bunch and Cassavetes walked out irate and he's like they're not supposed to laugh we gotta cut all the jokes out (laughs) (laughs) okay John I mean he's right I would I I think that movie would be way worse if it was like a a, like laughy comedy because it like makes all the like horrible stuff hit harder when you're like these guys are kind of fucked up but I also think, like, you know, the Cassavetes movies are so much about um, – I, I think John Cassavetes was so obsessed with the way people speak when they are inebriated, uh, going through a psychological break or both, right? Yeah. Like, his movies are people giving these long monologues where they're sort of poetic in their own mind and it's almost gobbledygook. Right, and you're like, what are, what are they saying? Yeah. This is a movie where the two guys talk – far more straight to each other. It's still got the Cassavetes acting energy, but a lot of it is them talking around subjects, you know? Yeah, I would say at first. I would say the last half, you lose that a little bit, in a good way. Like, I'm not I, saying that sort of as a positive or negative. Yeah, I'm just saying I was sort of watching this, trying to really parse the the differences, because it it is, this movie is an odd duck, because uh, Elaine May, this is her first film that is entirely original. Her first two movies, A New Leaf and Heartbreak Kid, were adapted from short stories. One by her, one not by her. Uh, Adapted, I mean. Neither story was written by her. This was entirely created by her and was based on people she grew up around. Um, I was watching, there's a special feature on the Criterion disc with, uh, let me look up what the guy's name is, but he worked at Paramount, was the one guy who sort of took on the responsibility of trying to distribute this movie and then became her producer for her plays for a while after that. And his name is Julian Schlossberg. Um, But uh, he said, without going into too much detail, that uh, Elaine May's family was uh, connected or at least sort of connected adjacent. And so she grew up around people like this. Uh, yeah, I think it was like there were some there were some guys who were around her family growing mm-hmm. up who were yeah. like like Mike Inicky. And also yeah. in the in the same way that they're like lower tier, she wasn't like hanging around with like mob bosses right. or whatever. That that was the whole conceit of this movie, I think, is just like, can I make a movie about the guys that never end up in a mob movie? These guys who are just kind of <laughs> sad sacky, low level, sort of like schlumping around. They're schmucks who owe people money. Like, is, yeah. is essentially what they are. That's the extent to which they're really connected. Like, they know the bad people to go to, and they, you know, maybe do some, like some work or whatever. You know, but like they're right. They're not like in the family. You know. But also, you know, if you if one of these guys are 
are in a mob movie, they're in it for one scene as the guy that fucking De Niro intimidates and makes look like a shitworm or something. I mean, you this know? is only four years after The Godfather. Like, there's, right. there's not a lot of good mob movies yet. There's just that, really. Yeah. Uh, we're just getting to the sort of modern gangster movie. It's really just started to happen as this is coming out. That's, that's how, like, sort of... Uh, modern this movie this movie is so modern as much as yeah. it is also a crazily 70s movie where there's a guy who sells cream and you know everyone's <laughs> got a raincoat and everyone smokes 100 million cigarettes and all that but like it also is just it just feels like it was made yesterday yeah i should mention it was shot in 1973 so it was shot only a year after the godfather it took three full years to come out right there you go fuck yeah and she had been writing it forever yes so it's like not like godfather inspired like no i'm not saying at it's all no, yeah, no. yeah 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 but like it, i don't know it's completely original um but uh i i was trying to get a sense of the timing of this i know she she tried it out with a bunch of different pairings of guys in the two lead roles and she had done script readings with groden and falk uh you i've read a lot of interviews with cassavetes from the early 70s where he talks about how much he likes elaine may movies and he wants to collaborate with her so i think they already were in communication at this point at some point the idea comes to put these two guys together which then suddenly makes it such a cassavetes adjacent film you know uh because even though this is very much elaine may's script this movie is not as improvised as sort of legend has it um and it's very much got her own different filmmaking style uh you have these two guys who are now uh taking a certain amount of authorship of the internal rhythms of each scene and those rhythms are very defined by the work that they had done together for decades now at this point the way Peter Falk tells it is like he was like having lunch with Cassavetes in like the Paramount commissary and was like, I got this script from Elaine May. You want to you want to read it? And he was and Cassavetes like, I'll do it. And Peter Falk was like, no, 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 no you got to read it. Like, don't just like say you're going to do it. And then apparently Cassavetes is by the end of this like argument is like standing on the table being like, is she writing it? And Peter Falk was like, yes. Is she directing it? Yes. Are you going to be in it? Yes. And then he's like, I'll do it. <laughs> like, that is how much he like liked Elaine May and Peter Falk and was just like. I'm in. And also to just like jump on the table at lunch is very Casavetti. That's what I was going to say. When you hear like show busy, old Hollywood, new Hollywood stories like that, often you're like, but come on, it's being exaggerated. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, this, this extreme. Paprika. Right. Everyone I've uh, ever met who worked with Casavetti's and I, I, you know, have uh, gone out of my way to try to speak to a couple people who have worked with him in the past as such a big fan all say like no he was absolutely that fucking dramatic he was such a goddamn showboat if he wanted to prove a point he would actually stand up on a table and yell that in the commissary in front of everybody like that fundamentally was who he was on a daily basis such a pain in the ass yeah must have been such a pain in the ass to hang out with my god well that's because i think i try to remember who it was it was maybe al rubin who was like his producer for most of his movies but i was saying like i just think he's such a genius and they were like i mean he was kind of just a pain in the ass <laughs> it's fucking annoying <laughs> it's funny to hear like you talk about him this way because he was just kind of like a, a clown do you think it's because he was short? I was about to say, we <laughs> must call out that he's short a short king. king so is Peter Falk. They're both short. Falk, Gazzara, Cassavetti's all short. But weirdly, Gazzara and Falk 
read short. Cassavetes, yes, if this you is what I was gonna say. No, Cassavetes has the face of a taller man. He's got a tall face. Yes. Yeah, and he just sort of looks like. I mean, it's that he's so he's a very striking, handsome guy, but he looks yeah. like a boxer or something. Yes. Like he just kind of looks tough. He's got like these angles, I guess. Yeah. There, there's uh, a, uh, a Johnny term, Staccato. There's a term my brother James Newman, who was once an amateur boxer, loves uh, that that's used about boxers' faces, which is uh, uh, he looks like a bruised penny. Mm, I love it. This is a real bruised penny movie. Yeah, you know, but these are bruised penny faces. These guys, uh, Casface just has a fucking unbelievable mouth. Have you ever seen that show, Johnny Staccato, where he played a jazz yeah. pianist who was a private detective? It just yeah. sounds like the greatest show of all time. Yeah, guess what? It is. It rules. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so good. The Sopranos can eat Johnny Staccato's ass. Johnny Soprano <laughs> never hey, 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 plays, hey, plays does jazz sets. <laughs> it's so wild. Oh, God. I should watch that. How do I watch that? I have it on DVD. I don't know all if right, it's somewhere. Mister. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, you're saying everyone's watching The Sopranos in um, in quarantine. Maybe we should be watching Johnny Staccato. But Columbo, because the, the first two Columbo movies are 68 and 72. So he's done two Columbos by the time he starts shooting this movie. By the time it comes out, he is very much Columbo. I think he is working very hard to not let that define his entire career. Right. I didn't realize before literally today that Columbo wasn't like like hour long episode right. TV shows. No, I was, there would I like, just be a Columbo once in a while. Yeah, yeah, it was like I because I watched the one that Cassavetes is in where he plays a uh, a conductor who murders yes. his. Um, mistress, who is uh, also the piano player in his orchestra. Um, and it's like an hour and a half. And I was like, oh, this is like how British people do TV. Yeah. Like, this it, is crazy. Some of them are like as long as 100 minutes, some are 70. It would range. Like, it's just a whole other world. It is. Yeah. Like, you could you could just be like, there, like here's your, here's your Columbo. Like, it'll be whatever we give yes. you. <laughs> Take your Columbo and enjoy it. And also, he did it until like 2003 like there he were new columbos coming out for like 40 years his la the last columbo episode was in 2003 and it's called columbo likes the nightlife and it's pretty good and matthew reese is in it jesus but columbo was just like it was like iron man for him he could just be like i'll do three quick columbos i'll do some you know? columbos all right <laughs> yeah. okay uh, all right one more, uh, uh, one more some columbo one more <laughs> one more columbo and like what's the premise of columbo like he's kind of a bum and you you know who did the murder from the first scene like that's the only premise there's <laughs> the premise of Columbo is he seems like he doesn't know what he's doing and at the very end he reveals that actually he's good at his job but also you always see the crime yeah. to start the show right like that that's it's one kind of twist but that's it watching it today really felt like reading like encyclopedia brown where <laughs> i was like i was like figuring out how he was gonna put it together i was like oh he left a flower on the floor <laughs> like that's how you're gonna get him they call it a how catch him. That's what they call that. How catch Instead of a who done it. Right. Like they're like, what if you do it the other way where it's like you're going to watch him put it together? But I'm even just like, I'm on the Columbo Wikipedia page right now. And the, the key image is, excuse me, the Columbo season one DVD set, which is even weird to call it like Columbo season one. Yeah. Right. 
What is in Is it just the first Columbo or is it like multiple Columbos? Let's just keep saying Columbos. I guys. know. <laughs> There's 69 episodes. They're saying the first season yeah, was seven episodes that aired between September and February of 72. In that season of television, right? Right. And like, right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and I just tried to close uh, my Columbo tab and it said, I don't know, just one more thing. <laughs> but do you see this photo? Very funny. Five comedy <laughs> points. pretty funny. Do you see this photo where he's like covering like his one of yeah, his eyes and like cigarette smoke running over his shoulder because he's got a cigar under his armpit and like. Yeah, he sure does. Fucking Columbo, man. Let's just turn this into a Columbo cast. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just interesting when I feel like. uh a filmmaker takes on a actor who is so much the author of their own movies. You know, you get this sort of interesting sort of mashup. How many, how many examples are there of this? Because of course, not a lot of actors direct uh, and the ones that do, there's only a few that are like auteurs on the level that Cassavetes was. I'm like literally trying to think like, what are I mean, other movies? Do you think like directing Clint Eastwood would be like, kind of like, I yes. think that's an example. Yeah. Eastwood's a good one. Yeah. Warren Beatty's another one. Of course, that's what she, that's the fucking problem she runs into with Ishtar is if you're in, a, if you're directing Warren Beatty at a certain right. point, he wants to direct the movie and he only doesn't because he's acting and he's like, ah, I'm too busy. And then, but then he just fucking does it anyway. Famously, I think you guys should do a Warren Beatty miniseries so that I can come and tell you that the rules don't apply. They don't. (laughs) They don't. And people don't understand this. Olivia, I've been screaming about this. Listen, I'm with you guys. The rules, fuck them. I'll tell you. The other day I went on I went on to Apple Music and was so frustrated to see that still years later you cannot download the song rules don't apply from rules don't apply it has never been legally released i was scouring the internet for it it's so good it's such a jam great song great song it's about how rules don't apply and emily in paris is in it emily in paris with han solo yes emily in paris and han solo they met it's a it's a movie about them trying to fuck and howard hughes Played by Warren Beatty. Yes. Being super into that idea. It's one of those incredibly normal casts. Uh, Han Solo, <laughs> Emily in Paris, <laughs> Dick Tracy, Alec Baldwin, Dabney Coleman, Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Absolutely. Wait, Martin Ed Sheen Harris, shows up. Martin Sheen. It's just one of those movies where you're like, I mean, we sh- we will do Warren Beatty one yeah. day, obviously. And Olivia, it sounds like you want rules don't apply. But it's one of those movies where you're like, did nobody check on this one? Before they put it out? Yeah. Like, did no well, one just kind of... Because kinda... he was, like, he spent, like, a million years being, like, this is my movie. <laughs> and then finally they were, like, fine. I remember, like, it was a um, Fox movie just being, like, when it was coming out, I'm, like, getting in touch with Fox and being, like, guys, anything you want to do on this movie, yeah. I want to do it. I assume Warren's not involved, but, like, you know, not available. But just show it to me as soon as you can. I can't wait to see this thing. I'm so excited. And they were like, oh, we're so excited to show it to you. Never got in touch. They never showed it to anyone. They yeah. did, like, one screening a night before it came out. They were just like, ugh, goodbye. But he, like, did podcasts. Like, he went on, like, Happy, Sad, Confused, and I feel like a couple other shows. And then there was that lawsuit recently where he was suing... Not Fox, but maybe 
uh, I think Regency or one of yeah, the you know, one of the companies Rat Pack right one of those. Be- for uh, maybe it was suing Fox for mishandling the distribution of the film and they all these emails leaked out that Warren Beatty had written three weeks after the movie came out where he was like I still think with good word of mouth we could turn this movie's box office fortunes around and it's Aww. like Warren Beatty is still in Bonnie and Clyde mode where you can have <laughs> like a disastrous Radio City music hall premiere and then five months later it can be a hit in Boise he's like yeah have we opened in the southwest yet like come on <laughs> truly uh, can i also say it was originally set up at paramount it was like a big brad gray thing a big announcement we're so excited to be back in the warren Beatty business and at that point the cast was andrew garfield baldwin hey. benning shia labeouf jack nicholson evan rachel wood rooney mara owen wilson sounds good and then almost all the people who are box office dropped out of the movie but Timberlake was considered. Felicity Jones uh, was considered. Felicity Jones, right? Yeah. Uh, Carrie Mulligan. Anyway, this is not a rules don't apply episode. Not, not yet. yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, I, I'd say uh, Costner is one of those guys uh, in the category you're yeah. talking about. Uh, from experience, I believe he directs at least fifty percent of every movie he's in, and even the stories I've heard about shit like Molly's Game and uh, Man of Steel, where he has relatively small parts, he exerts a lot of control. Right, right. Yeah. If he's on camera, at least yeah. he's he's bossing people. If he bossed me around, I'd probably let him do it. Honestly, yeah. but like we've we've talked a lot about, uh, you know. Uh, someone like uh, Sandler, who is not a director, but is certainly the auteur of his movies. And he chooses sure. whether he's handing over himself to other directors and letting them use him as they want or whether, uh, you know, he's doing his Sandler thing. Whereas Cassavetes at this point really was just doing the Cassavetes thing. There wasn't another mode. There was paycheck mode. There right. was, I hate the thing I'm in. When he's in the fury. Right. right. I just have utter like contempt for this project. I mean, you read, like, interviews with him, and he just hated almost everything he worked on. He hates, like, Rosemary's Baby, yeah. which is crazy to me. Yeah. He's like, fuck that movie. It's not It's not good. <laughs> like, he's good in it. Yeah, he's, he's really good in it. But I think this is, like, one of the only movies where he's like, I really like this movie. Yeah. I really like what I did in this movie. And it, and like that makes sense because so many people are like this feels very Cassavetti. So you really have the sense that he was like felt like he was doing the right, thing he, was, he likes to do. In the Fury, he explodes. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it is cool. I I think this might be his best performance ever as like a Cassavetti's mm. obsessive. Just as an actor, I think this is probably his best work. And I think she gets interesting results out of him because she is one of the few directors he worked for that he did respect, but yet she reigns in some of his more indulgent tendencies. I, right. And also just, yeah, there's less ego I, in a way. I mean, maybe ego is not the right word, but here's the question. Oh, shit. Yeah. Does, I guess, do you nominate both Griffin? I'm looking at the, the spreadsheet right now. That's I, I, I'm just, I'm just I, thinking I would nominate Cassavetes. I don't know. I mean, I don't this ha- is a tough year. I don't have a spreadsheet like you do. I wouldn't know whether there's room for two in the five or not. I don't have a list in front of me. Who else is in this year? So De, De Niro in Taxi Driver, obviously. Mm. A, you know, Can I say, a I, th- I think he's good in that. Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. right. A well-known performance. Yeah, it's a good movie, actually. I, Right. And then you've got and like I I think you can't not have Sylvester Stallone in Rocky. I think that is a very important performance. I, I and I think he's wonderful in that movie, but beyond that, just like everything that meant. 
Mm-hmm. And then you have the Oscar winner, who's Peter Finch in Network, mm-hmm. which is another one of those like, fuck, you know, I'm not even the biggest Network fan. Like, I like Network, but not as much as some people like Network. But, you know, mm-hmm. Network is my absolute favorite movie, yeah. I think, of all there time. There you go. Speaking of Ned Beatty. Oh, and then so I have four and five are fucking Cassavetes, but that means I'm leaving out like The Boys from All the President's Men, another movie in which guys are being dudes. And Ned Beatty is in it. And he is, he's, he's in all, he's in every movie in 1976. He's in all the fucking Jeez. movies. Jeez. Yeah. I'm just thinking those are all 76. Man, I was yeah. just, uh, I watched, I know we're talking about a lot of other movies, but we're also talking about where these guys were at at this point in time. But, uh, uh, they were being dudes. They were being dudes. <laughs> You've also, just to be clear, you got Keith Carradine. I mean, uh, no, John Carradine uh, in uh, David Carradine. Jesus, I always mix up my Carradine. Ooh. David Carradine in Bound for Glory. You got Clint Eastwood in The Outlaw, Josie Wales. Like, you got you got a lot of good movies out there. I mean, William Holden in Network, obviously. And obviously, he's great. Hoffman is great in President's Men, too. So uh, he's good in Marathon Man. Uh, go on. Anyway, carry on. Uh, no, I, I just, uh, I watched uh, uh, Superman the movie the other night. Sure. I watched the the three-hour cut that is the cut that they uh, charged uh, TV networks more for so they could play it like two two-hour blocks over two nights. And it's just every single scene they shot put into the movie, which means there's a lot more Ned Beatty going like, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. <laughs> uh, but I, I was just sort of like, Huh, like where let me get my Ned Beatty timeline right. Like where was he in his career when he's playing dipshit with a pork pie hat who like gets Lex Luthor's mail? And it's like, right, this is after his dominant decade. His first movie is Deliverance. Yeah. Yeah. He he isn't in a movie until 1970. He's like 40 at that point. He's just a guy who's a respected theater actor, but not even necessarily like a Broadway actor. He's not like a huge deal. And then it's just like Bam, 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 bam. Like the 70s, he just gets his one Oscar nomination, which is a crime that he only got one. He also, I would argue, should have won that year. He's very good in that scene, obviously. It's a great yeah. scene. Who wins that year, though, Griffin? That's Robards, but it's Robards' first of two consecutive wins. So in hindsight, you're like, give it to Beatty in 76, give it to Robards. But in he is so abominably good in in all the presidents men he's outrageously good in that movie god and they nominated both burgess meredith and burt young yeah correctly yeah god what a good time i know this is like this is like not not to be like you know like my freshman year of film school and i just read like easy writers raging bulls but like this is just such an incredible time for also 76 is like the year i feel like that's always cited as like the best yeah best picture lineup ever right this best picture lineup is like phenomenal. Yeah, it's a very good Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver, and then you also have Carrie. You know the movies that they don't uh, yeah. get in the five, but you know you, you have huge movies outside of the five. Um, it's a great year. It's a great year. Face to Face is that year. Um, Seven Beauties is that year. And and this same year, Marathon Man. Mm-hmm. Mikey and Nikki essentially uh, escapes into theaters through contractual obligations, is dumped with a poster where the dumped tag Christmas Christmas. I was just going to say they make it a Christmas movie, which is like a horrible insane. Idea. Do you know what the tagline was for this movie? Don't expect to like them, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I th- yes. Which yes. is like helpful, I guess. But like, so this guy, what's his name? Schlossberg. Uh, yeah, Julian Schlossberg said that the, it was a deliberate strategy because she was so known as a comedian and uh, Heartbreak Kid and New Leaf had been hits that they were like, oh, put on the poster that you're not going to enjoy this. And that will teach people that it's not a comedy, which I don't know <laughs> if that's really effective messaging. <laughs> ring, 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 ring. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I, I'm curious, Olivia, because you said you did a lot of research leading up into this. Is there anything you dug up in terms of sort of the development, the incubation of this movie before we start talking about like plot proper? Well, I think it's like kind of obvious on the screen that she started writing it like as a play. Like it's originally mm-hmm. a one act play, like very it feels very two hander in a way that like comes alive on the screen. Like you could see this all taking place in like three places if she had to and I also like I don't know I think I think she is so interesting in her career because like she is the only she's like the third woman they let into the DGA yeah which is crazy like it's insane insane. and I think like it's I think it's incredibly cool that she got to make this movie at all and I know that it became hell on earth for her to like make it the way she wanted to but like the fact that someone gave her originally a million dollars and then eventually five million dollars to make this movie is just (laughs) like it's it's like the numbers are almost exactly the same as a new leaf which was like supposed to be one and ended up being 4.8 or whatever i mean she it was the same thing with her every time it's also just fascinating of like she's such a big star she's so acclaimed people want her to make a new leaf right she doesn't want to direct her star in it she's sort of talked into it and she has this awful experience making it and like tries to sue to take her name off the movie and stop it from being released and then she's just like cool so also i'm not going to be in my movies anymore like she immediately removes from the equation arguably one of her greatest selling points as a director you know which is like well i'm a big star i can put myself in it right and i think also like this is i'm sure you guys have talked about this but like and it's kind of almost like i don't know like well-trodden to discuss but like if she were a man she would have made more than four movies like you can be like this difficult and like be a guy especially in the 70s like like i think that like that was the time where directors were like fuck it (laughs) like terrible people i'm gonna be the worst man alive you up yeah Yeah. i'm gonna be the worst man alive make several masterpieces and you guys are all gonna like wash my feet like that's what's gonna happen it's a thing i've been working hard to make sure i balance and how we tell these stories in this mini series because it is like she was incredibly antagonistic she was certainly (laughs) someone who turned everything into an all-out war in the process of making her movies. That having been said, the men who did the same thing in the 70s were completely canonized and bowed to and their feet were washed, as you said. 100%. 
I mean, even like I think I like I like watched some video and the cinematographer was like, I quit. I fully quit in the middle of the shoot. And then I had right. to come back because they like couldn't light a scene properly. And so I had to like come back. But people were like quitting and being like confused by her. Like no one got it, which is like when a woman does it, it's like, who's this like? Who's this bitch demanding all these things? But like, I'll also say I work with a lot of female directors, uh, especially in in TV, as I've mostly done. You know, there are a lot of great like female directors who made one feature and can't get another feature made, and now are just great episodic directors who I've gotten to work with. And uh, and I've worked on a lot of like independent films where it's like a first time female filmmaker, and there just is absolutely a fundamental difference in how so much of the crew how, treats how the crew them. Treats you, right. right when 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 a female director comes out with like I want to do this, I want the shot this way, and people just assume that she doesn't know what she's talking about. You know, I just there's this attitude of like uh, that doesn't really make sense, and I've also just seen like first ads negate what the director said and instruct the camera crew to set up something different. Because they're like, well, she just, like, doesn't know. And I think it's interesting that it's, like, it happens on, like, this movie, but it also happens on, like, women's pictures. Like, it happens to Nancy Myers all the time, where it's, like, she knows what she wants to do. And people are, like, why is she Why is she so picky? Like, why is she so whatever? Yeah, I mean, once again, like, not that we need to reopen this wound, but David and I were texting each other when the whole Nancy Myers vulture, oh like, Hallie Shire thing. Was... Let's not. Oh, boy. You want to go ahead. Go ahead. This is all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. But we were texting while it was going on saying, like, hey, isn't it fun to not engage in this discourse whatsoever? You and I both know what we think about this. And the entire discourse around it is becoming insufferable. But the one thing we both said to each other, which I feel comfortable saying, on mic now is just like this should all be framed as a positive there there should not be this discussion of is it a, a backhanded compliment to say that she's picky about details that's like one of the things that she should wear as a badge of honor that she has that level of control over everything in front of her camera when fucking david fincher does that people lose their minds yeah. Uh, as a as a woman, I'll go on the record and say it's not sexist to have like an oeuvre of which you can make a taxonomy. That's a Indeed. cool thing to have. It's it's an achievement. You have a yeah. visual. Right. You're, yes, you're well known. To be known. able to like look at something and immediately see a beautiful kitchen and a stunning white turtleneck and be like, that's a Nancy Myers movie is like great. <laughs> that's the thing. I was just reading every piece of the of the Myers thing and going, why are are people arguing about this? It also it's like were people arguing about it or was Holly Holly Myers Shire being a little? That's free? the thing with the internet. Right, everyone is suddenly yelling, and you're like, I'm not even. Everyone seems to be just sort of yelling up, but like I don't know at who and whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, God knows. But it does feel like you know. It, in how much Elaine May actively resisted the sort of easier paths she could have had as a filmmaker, right? Uh, making movies yes. for herself as a star. You know, even after all the difficulty on A New Leaf, you imagine that would have been a much easier path for her if she just said, I make Elaine May comedies. I'm also the star of them. They're romantic comedies. They're weird. They're acerbic. They're dark. What have you. She takes herself out of the equation on the next one. And then her two final movies are very much boys' movies. You know, they're movies about guys being dudes, as you said. Uh, and these sad, broken men. Like, I think also, and this is kind of like my big thing about this movie, is like, I think 
one of the reasons that this feels like less messy than a Cassavetes movie because because he is also very good at being like what are men's relationships to each other like when they've known each other for a long time but there's mm-hmm. something about like when a woman makes a movie about men that is like sli- slightly more concise almost it's like Catherine Bigelow does this in I was going to uh, say Hurt Locker in Hurt Locker yeah. yeah where it's just like this this thing of being of like spending your whole life watching men interact or like having to watch men having to like take in what men are like for like just because that's the culture you consume because those are the people you have to listen to like all of that is like she's so smart about how these two guys like relate to each other in a way that feels very feminine well that's also like as as i was sort of saying at the beginning uh cassavetti's movies are usually about women having mental breakdowns and or men getting incredibly drunk, right? And yeah. and being self-destructive, engaging in self-destructive behaviors. And I think his his male-driven movies and his male relationships in his movies are about male intimacy. But it says something about him that he kind of only knows how to get there if the guys are so drunk that their filter yeah. is removed. And what's interesting right. about this movie is this is two guys who kind of can't say the right thing to each other. They are still closed off, but as an audience observing them, we it speaks volumes, right? Yeah. But you see, and you see that there's like 30 years there. Like you real like yes. like in the first scene where like Nikki or like uh, Mikey comes and Nikki like starts sobbing into him Mm -hmm. like that is a very intimate scene and they aren't even like wasted right and that's just like a very tender moment to Elaine May's credit I don't think Cassavetes was very capable or skilled at doing that I don't think he was capable of showing two men not saying much but saying everything and depicting intimacy he needs to have guys falling apart you know like literally collapsing on each other in the street screaming uh, at four o'clock in the morning. Yes, I should watch some more. Uh, it's been a while since I, I did rewatch Husbands recently. It was on um, Criterion, and I rewatched yeah. Gloria for some reason, <laughs> which Gloria. is just a a great time. Like you know, Gloria is kind of like the one where you're like, oh, he like made a half commercial movie, and and fuck, he's incredible at it. Like right. you know, like. But it's also that thing that thing I love of just like a filmmaker who is so fundamentally themselves that they kind of can't make a normal movie, and it's halfway in right. between their thing. But and it's like, so, I love it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's right. I but I like. Him. I haven't seen like Killing of a Chinese Book Year opening night, like or or Women Under an Influence since I was yeah. in college, like a yeah. long time. Oh my god, you should rewatch Women Under the Influence. It's uh, like yeah, so incredible. Jenna Rollins is just like she's incredible. Also crazy that they were married for so. You seems it seems like Casavetes would not be the kind of person who can like stay married for decades. I know, and yet, yeah. There he was. Crazy that she's she's still alive. She's yeah. fucking kicking around. She's yeah. like ninety years old. She rolls. She's probably my favorite actor actress of all time. I mean, she's like top five. Period. For me, are you Notebook Hive Griffin? I am. I was. You know, I was honestly very resistant to it for a while because I was such a fucking snotty little Cassavetti snob kid that I was like, why is Cassavetti's son making these rom-coms and why is that only the best, uh, rom-droms and why is that the best part that she can get? And then I came around to it. It's fucking good. That movie's good. That movie's I haven't really seen good. it in a while. And yeah. she's really great Yeah, in she's it. really great. She's, she's really good great. in it. Um, it is kind of 
unique, the dynamic of putting these two guys who have done so much stuff together, and especially Cassavetes with his stock company of, of Falk and Gazera and Rollins and everyone, had sort of created this entirely different tempo for screen acting, you know? And not many other people were running with that. So to sort of like adopt that into the cloth of your film, uh, to take a movie that that is very tightly written, that could have been a stage play, that almost was a stage play, and let two guys sort of like control the temperature in between, uh, you know, action and cut is is just an interesting. There aren't very many movies like this. No. No. Uh, yeah. And the only thing, right, we, we should, you know, as we've sort of discussed, Griffin, like, it's absolutely true that the industry had no interest in helping Elaine May make good movies. No. But it is also it's also true as you're saying like she herself was was not sure she wanted to do it a lot of the time. Like she she would struggle with like do I want and of course part of it is like do I want to run the gauntlet again of mm-hmm. you know all the bullshit that will await me, right? But like she you said when you you saw her talking about Ishtar like she was kind of like, look, I could have done what you're saying. Like, I could have done the the Woody Allen thing where I do a light comedy every other year, basically. Right. And I didn't want to do that. And she also said, I could have made a lot of movies after Ishtar. Like, it certainly knocked me back on my right. heels. But I've gotten offers, and I could have sold something, and I just didn't have... I didn't care enough to go through this bullshit again. I mean, that was very much her attitude of just, like... It, it was just so miserable. I didn't care enough well did you guys hear that thing maybe a couple years ago where dakota johnson was allegedly doing an elaine may movie yes which would be so good i feel like dakota johnson is like a perfect person for elaine may who is like we live in hope we live i i want it so bad because i think she's like funny in that way that's like underrated where it's like elaine may could really like do it up for her Dakota Johnson is the best. I said this in our Harvard Kid episode, but Ellen, that's not true, is kind of like a perfect Elaine May scene. Oh, my God. Ellen, that's not what happened. Also, her recently revealing that she was lying about loving limes in her Architectural Digest. Like, like, that is so funny. She's got some chaotic energy. That was what I said. That that was like a Joker moment. That was was like, (laughs) wait, Dakota, wait a second. You're not aware yeah. Of what it's what you're doing here now. But um the back to Mikey and Nikki. The only other thing I'll say about mm-hmm. Elaine May, uh, Elaine May's chaotic filmmaking nature is that she did shoot a million and a half feet of film. Yes. Which is uh, uh, I mean, that's normal, crazy. That's normal crazy. two hour movies are eleven thousand feet. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> that's, that's so much. Yes. Uh this was one million four hundred thousand, uh, which is I think three times more than Gone with the Wind. And Gone with the Wind is a, a day long, right? I mean, the final cut of that movie is one day, I think. <laughs> it, it's, it's a long movie. It's, it's four hours. I mean, minutes. It is <laughs> it's four, four hours. Yeah. It's four hours long. Mikey and Nikki is 140, and she shot three times more than Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And now I know that, like, Judd Apatow shoots like a million feet of film. It's like there are people who take her approach now where it's just like just keep it rolling we're gonna do everything we can think of like but it is just still it must have been astonishing for them for her to be like yeah you know my little two-hander gangster movie where like the fourth lead probably has one scene yeah i shot a million and a half feet of film i'm gonna need a year to cut it 
Like, I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. Like, I mean, I can only imagine how mind-blowing that all, how, how that all went over. But so much of it was, I think, her knowing how Cassavetes and Falk like to yes, work at this point. So in, in a way that, that predated Apatow, by decades, she wanted to have multiple cameras cross-shooting at the same time so that if there was a, a, a beautiful discovered moment, she had multiple angles of it. She had editing options. She didn't have to recreate it. She also would just not call cut. She would just let the camera keep rolling even when the scenes were done to see if anything happened. And there's the famous story that we they... have to tell the we have to relate the famous. I story. love this. It's the best story, story of all time. It's one of one of the scenes where they're out in the street and both guys walk off camera and the camera keeps running for three minutes. And the first AD yells out cut and she comes out screaming and says, what are you doing? I'm the director. You don't get to call cut. He said, the guys walked out and she went, but what if they come back? <laughs> I learned some crazy like preamble to that story, which is that they were like supposed to shoot that scene on a Friday. They spent the whole day rigging lights on lighting poles so that they could like shoot at night on this like long strip of street. And then she arrives on set at night and she's like, no, I want them to walk the other way. The lights are set up this way. <laughs> and so they're like, just have them walk that way. And she's like, no. And so they have to do it, shoot it the next day, reset up all the lights. And on the night before she had been like, there's like a cobblestone part of the street. And she's like, well, that has to get paved. <laughs> she wouldn't let them have like a cobblestone street. And then that same night after they had like gone through hell, getting it all set up, she was like, what if, what if they come back? Just like a crazy 24 I hours. Mean, it's just another thing about her is that she was incredibly particular. And a lot of times that she was particular about was creating the circumstances for something she didn't know she wanted. Yeah. I think also she like just liked watching Peter Falk and John Cassavetes work together. She would just like sit there. And even if the camera like ran out of film she would say, don't, don't, don't yell cut. Just let them keep going. I want to see where this goes. I want to see you guys end the scene. And like, they would have to be like, Elaine, what are we doing here? Like the camera's definitely out of film at this point. Like, which I, I can't blame her. I mean, Apatow says a lot that like he loves Cassavetti's movies and would watch them yes. and go, can you make a movie like this that just has more jokes in it? Like, can you make that a movie his... like this? His whole idea for the King of Staten Island. And as you can tell, it totally worked. But even back to 40-Year-Old Virgin, I mean, he even says yes, like that was, I, I mean, at that point he was more concerned with trying to fit into the expectations of a commercial comedy. But he's always said like, these movies are just kind of actors behaving. You get people who like each other off camera as well, are natural. You set up a bunch of cameras, you give them a lot of time, and you don't make it very plot or conflict heavy. You just kind of create a central set of circumstances and let scenes flow. And every movie he's made since then has gone further and further, it feels like, in the direction of, can I go full Cassavetes? Um, but but in a way, what he's doing is closer to this movie than it is to Cassavetes, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, this yes. feels like yes. the midpoint between the two. Yeah. yeah. I think, like, funny people in This Is 40 definitely have those vibes of just being like, we're just putting some people in some places and seeing seeing how it happens this is 40 especially where there's no plot and then yeah. at the end it's kind of like 
oh, there's uh, dad's in the hospital. Like where it just feels like they suddenly were like, oh, fuck, something should like happen. I wish we, we got to do Apatow Griffin. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie since theaters and I always think about it. Um, I haven't either, but I, I think about it with uh, a lot of confusion. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, maybe it's incredible or maybe it's I don't the know. worst. I mean, we both stand funny people and funny people for me is the yeah. one where he got the balance totally right in terms of what he's trying to do. Uh, and King of Staten Island, I watch and I'm like, this either needs to be a lot more dramatic or have 40% more jokes. Olivia, what do you think of those movies? Um, I mean, I like Judd Apatow. I was also like a, a teenager when Judd Apatow was really like cranking him out. Like I was in middle school, I think, when Knocked Up came out and was like mm-hmm. sweeping the nation. So I think I was like really primed to like love Judd Apatow movies and I've kind of just like seen all of them. I haven't seen King of Staten Island though because I'm kind of averse to watching haven't seen a it. lot of Pete Davidson at once. I mean, it it really feels like this, right? It, it's I I it just does. kept thinking because it's while a lot of people this. just hanging out and talking yeah. shit, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And then occasionally his Hollywood instincts kick in, and he's yeah. like, "Okay, but anyway, here's what's up with the story." And it feels a little jarring anytime he does that. Yeah, but it also doesn't have the Apatow lineorama thing, like. Kingston Island feels like the first one where he's not pointedly trying to make sure there are jokes in scenes. Um, uh, the thing that also I think differentiates this from the Cassavetes movies, which is closer to the model that Apatow tried to follow, is that like the plot does it, the movie does kind of have a plot. It has a motor behind it. You know, it's not just a set of circumstances. It's like here's this guy. He's worried he's going to die tonight. Right. He calls up his friend to help him out. And meanwhile, he's being hunted. You know, there's a clock on this movie. But that's it. Yes. That's the entire plot. And And I think, like, that is kind of the theatrical thing where it's less like he, like, has a goal, which I feel like is a very cinematic thing. And, like, a very theatrical thing is to, like, have a question is, like, is he going to die? And it's like that is going to be answered by the time the curtain falls. Like, Like, I don't know if you guys have ever read or seen Night Mother. Do you know that play? Yeah, 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 where yeah. it's just like at the beginning of Act One, the daughter comes out and she's like, I'm going to kill myself. And the whole play is her mother being like, don't kill yourself. And then at the end of the play, spoiler, she does. And it's just like the whole time you're like, is she going to do it? And the whole time you're watching this movie, you're like, is Ned Beatty going to get him? Is Peter Falk going right. to like right. step in and like cut it off? Because you kind of know where it's going, but you want it to like maybe end differently. But the movie is also, over the course of this, like, uh, 100 minutes, uh, trying to parse what their relationship is. Getting these little drips and drabs that come out in conversations where you start to be able to build a map in your mind of who these guys are exactly and who they are to each other. Because it just starts so abruptly. Yeah, and I also think this movie makes a really smart choice of having them at, like, a very interesting point in their friendship where they have, like, kind of fallen off, but he is still... They are still like each other's oldest friends, but Mikey is like, you don't answer my phone calls anymore. Like you're only calling me because you're in trouble. Like it's that kind of like low point in their friendship that this movie catches them at. I wouldn't be friends with Nikki. Just no. to be, just, oh just my to God. put he that. He seems like a bad friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nikki's a real shithead. I also, I kind of love <laughs> any movie where you don't know if, characters telling the truth at any point or not oh you know i just think like a lesser movie would have you like 
kind of know what's going on yeah. the whole time. And the fact that, like, in that first, like, time when uh, Mikey is, like, on the phone or, like, like Ned Beatty is, like, go to the bar, do whatever. And then you cut to them in the diner and Peter Falk is on the phone and you can't tell if he was with Ned Beatty or not because he's, like, there's no flights from TWA. So you're, like, oh, he was just talking maybe to the airport, but, like, maybe to Ned Beatty. And, like, by the time you figure it out, like, I don't know. It's really, I mean, it's just such a smart screenplay. It's just so good. David, you said, like, this is one of the most weirdly disorienting movies ever made. And all of that factors into it, where you just kind of in every scene can't figure out what you're supposed to know or not, which I also think is kind of replicating the energy of these two guys sitting across from each other, not knowing whether or not they can trust each other. Also, but it's also like they'll go to a new location, a restaurant, a bus, a bar, right? And you're like, okay, they're going to sit here. And they're like, by the end of the scene, they've like physically threatened someone. They're like, I'm going to kill you. You know, they're like grabbing people and like pushing them across the table. Like, and, and sometimes Peter Fox doing it. The, the supposedly, you know, you're, you're sort of like, oh, well, this guy's the moderate one, you know, like right. in every scene. And then occasionally he's the one who's just. Like when he like he, jumps he, over the counter for the cream. Yeah. Oh, so just good. like kind yeah. of out of nowhere. Like, right. He, conveys after a long exchange what he wants and gets the guy on board with giving him 15 cups of cream and, and charging him for 15 coffees. The guy's about to do it and Fox like, all right, I gotta go nuclear. But it's also <laughs> like, like, this is the moment. Uh, if you look, there's the two women in the background of the shot who are like at mm-hmm. the counter and they are, are have that thing where they're kind of like uncomfortably laughing Right. Right. It's kind of like, have you guys ever been to a Waffle House? Uh, yeah. I certainly have. <laughs> it, it's it's kind of like when something is happening in a Waffle House and you're like, this actually isn't my business. <laughs> like, right. Right. But they're not like threatened and they're not shocked. No. They're kind of just going like, oh, this is weird. Yeah. And it's I, like <laughs> late at night. You're at a diner. You're like, any freak could walk in right, right. now. Like, and, and part of me felt like, I wonder if these two background actors, this is the only take where he did this. That they're right. reacting that way because they, it almost looks like they're looking they're like, off this camera. This isn't in the movie, right? Right, <laughs> right. They're giving these looks again. like that. But it like, works. what's the story? I was at a coffee shop. It was crazy, and Columbo came in and got the guy <laughs> to agree to sell him fifteen cups of cream right. and then beat the shit out of him. Right. He he had agreed to the terms that he would pay for fifteen cups of coffee in exchange for just the cream, and then he strangled the guy and said he would kill him in six seconds unless he got the cream. Was his plan to carry like fifteen cups of cream, or do you guys think that there was some like divvying situation? <laughs> you can't actually depict Peter. Falk I think maybe Peter Falk like figured that out and was like, "I actually have to get violent because there's no yeah. way I can carry that much cream." In a dignified manner. It's just such a bizarre scene. I mean, what? The the opening of the movie is like Cassavetti's looking at the newspaper, right? And and calling Mikey in and a And he panic. sees that his like like bookie partner has been right. killed. But it's it's just such an effective opening because it's like, here's the sad sack guy. He looks like shit. He wakes up, right? He rolls out of bed. It's the middle of the night, you know? Uh, he he looks at the newspaper and then you just see it on his face. Like, oh, this guy thinks he's a dead man. Right. And he's so sweaty. He has an ulcer so too. Sweaty. That's like a really, like, that's like one of those things where it's just like, 
kind of not relevant to the situation, but it's like fun to remember from time to time. Yeah. It's like, oh, right. He also has an ulcer. He he looks like he hasn't slept in years. He looks yeah. like he hasn't slept since like the mid 60s. <laughs> yes. But then he calls up Mikey and like one of the first things he tells him is that he's at a payphone. Right. Like the, one of the first things he does is lie to his friend on the phone. True. And then, uh, of course, when Mikey shows up, he starts throwing shit out his window to signal that that's where he mm-hmm. is. I love that. Yeah. What, what does Mikey say? Like, I got your brick. I can't, I'm trying to remember what, how he puts it. Like, yeah. Instead of I got your message. Yeah. But but then, right. When when Mikey goes upstairs, Falk up like uh, Cassavetes doesn't want to let him in is convinced he's got cops with him. Like, won't open the door more than a sliver. Like, there's just such an insane amount of paranoia from the beginning. And also just uh, um, dishonesty between the two of them. But, like, but then Peter Falk, like, gives him the the medicine because he's like, I've known you for 30 years. You call me in the middle of the night. I'm going to bring what is essentially Tums, I guess, right. for his ulcer. But I think that is the moment where you're like, that's, like, one of those lines where you're like, Oh, yeah, these guys have, like, been around the block. These guys have, like, a deep relationship where he knows that, like, this guy's ulcer is probably acting up right now. Or, like, this guy's got a tummy ache. He also feeds him the pills as if he's a toddler. Yes. Because he thinks it's poison. Right. Open up. Open up. You know, I mean, he's going, like, here comes the choo-choo train with (laughs) painkillers. He is. Yes. I mean, because Nikki is essentially, like... Any, if I walk on the street, everyone wants to kill me. Right. If you're knocking on the door, it's because you have a gun and you're going to murder me. If you're giving me food, it's because you poisoned it. Like, that's right. just his approach to every single thing that's happening to him. And the, the, again, the great thing about this movie is that he's kind of right. Like, the, he ends up sure. being right the yeah. whole he's time. He's marked for death. It's true. He's like, he shouldn't have maybe let Mikey into the room. But I mean, like, it doesn't explain how he, like, goes after M.M. at Walsh. He's like, you're in on this. There's that great line when he's, like, trying to kill M.M. at Walsh. And, and Mikey's just like, Mickey, this guy's enormous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, where it's like, come on, man. Like, not everyone is, is, like, involved in the international conspiracy to make you exit the front of the bus because that's the only place they could shoot you. Like, you know, but that that's... Whatever. That's how it's built up for him at this point. That, you know, there's the um, the Roger Ebert, like the M.M. at Walsh rule that like no movie with right. M.M. at Walsh in it can be entirely bad. By virtue of having M.M. at Walsh in it for even one scene, the movie has at least one redeeming quality. And I always like when I would read that would go like, I mean, I love M.M. at Walsh, but that's a weird guy to make that rule for. But then anytime he shows up in a movie, I'm like, no, it, it does feel right. The best. He's the best. There is just an immediate jolt anytime he shows up for one scene. A hundred percent. With the last example being Knives Out. Yeah. He's still going. Yeah. And when he was in Knives Out for one scene, I was like, oh, look, it's Emma Walsh. Oh, this is a good scene. I like (laughs) what he's doing here. And now, is that true for the Scorpion King 4, the quest for power? Look, I was looking through his career to see if there's something that disproves the rule. And that's the only one that has potential, I think, to ruin it. I haven't seen it. I don't. I haven't either. Gosh, this is like a Schrodinger's M.M. at Walsh at the moment. Right. Like, we just don't know. It could be. Could go either way. Might be great. Um. Okay. Wait. So what happens next? They go to the restaurant next. Yeah. Where they, they go to the restaurant. Next? Yeah. They drink milk and beer and soda. They have yes. a lot of beverages. It's a big beverage night. 
for them. There's something about the way that guys in the 70s talk about beer. It makes it seem like beer was maybe better or like, yeah, I think beer was inarguably worse. (laughs) Like, I I think beer has improved. Beer has definitely improved, but like. Maybe it's because it was worse and it was just more like water that you could just really just like. I don't know. But there's a, there's something holy about the way guys in 70s movies and TV show casually talk about like, all I'm looking for is a cold glass of beer. Right. It sounds so refreshing. It's not like, oh, let's go get drinks, you know? No, they just they want beer. <laughs> right. I want a beer. I don't know. There was less to do back then. A beer was probably one of the top five most exciting things you could do that day, without question. I think also in those days, you weren't expected to function like you could just be drunk. That is true. Yes. <laughs> get away with it. Yes. People would just go to lunch and get blasted. Yeah. And everyone was kind of fat. Everyone was kind of fat. Everyone was just kind of chubbier, you know? Like, everyone yeah. just kind of ate badly and, and like, you know? Well, I think more more specifically, no one was fit. No one right. was in shape. No one on earth was right. in shape. Right. Like, when you see Sean Connery as James Bond or whatever, you're like, this guy looks like me, practically. I mean, I obviously, know. he's a good-looking and guy. But, like, he's just got a regular-ass body. It is wild when you read, like, newspaper stories about him getting cast as Bond, and they're like, Ugh, rather than casting an actor, they cast some bodybuilder, Sean Connery. Because <laughs> he, like, has shoulders. Like, he was the most ripped guy on the planet? That same thing kind of extends to, like, the women of the 70s, mm-hmm. where it's like, mm. they all look like normal people. Like, every woman in this every woman in this movie, like, in the face and the body and the dress, like, it's like the Carol Grace role would be, like, Ugh. Margot Robbie today. Yeah. And I'd be like, what? Like, that's not really computing for me. But when it's just like a normal woman, I'm like, oh, yes, of course. She's so fucking good in this. I didn't she's realize that she incredible. was married to Walter Matthau. Yeah. She's basically only in one other movie. Yeah. Like ever. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And she was married to Walter Matthau for like 40 years. She has four credits total. This is her last. She was in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She was in yeah. Gangster Story, which is the only movie Matthau ever directed. And she's in one other movie uncredited. Was she? Did she do theater? Because it just seems like crazy that you could just like pop out and do this incredible performance. Just kind of they had they had one kid, and the only line on Wikipedia, but I do like this line, and I wish this line was on my Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. She had a wide social circle and was known for her wit and good company. That's how. That's literally. That's all you want to be remembered for. That's all for. you want to be remembered for. She sounds like a cool motherfucker. Yeah. yeah. She she wrote a novella and a memoir. Uh, she did do a lot of Broadway. She did a lot of Broadway. Yeah, okay. That makes yeah. sense. There you go. Yeah. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. But she's great in this movie. Jesus. Uh, ben, I just want to... Ben, I feel like you haven't weighed in about Mikey and Nikki. I just feel like this is such a Ben movie. I want to know if it took you by surprise. You were saying pre-Mike that it kind of stressed you out. It did. I mean, not... I, in a bad way. Yeah. Uh, these are characters that comfort me, kind of, mm. in a fucked up way. I like, like that take. Anger expressed, it, where it's not like, it, it's just like, it reminds me of the people I saw growing up and people who were around me who would just like yell and scream like it was sport. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Like they're like they're running around the block essentially. That's their version of it. It's just yelling and screaming. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's um, and if, you know, it's also like the the best time in New York too. Like I love seeing New York in these in these days. The old cars, um, but it, it's also <laughs> it reminds me of all my really bad friends that I had over the years that I don't talk to anymore. So it's like, it kind of hit me in a personal way too, where it was like, Oh, that's, that really reminds me of Joey Beatles. Like I haven't talked to that guy in a while. I wonder what's going on with him. Is he on parole? Like, is he out of jail? So how's Joey Beatles dealing with the pandemic? Right. I don't know. I haven't kept up with any of these people. I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's a movie about, uh, the, the type of guy that is incredibly at peace with being trash, you know, yeah. like these guys are very chill and comfortable being very uncomfortable and wound up. Well, I don't think they have a choice. Yeah, but they, I mean, they create chaos. But sometimes, I mean, if that's just the environment that you were reared in, what you're used sure. to and how you express yourself. You know, it's just like that's how things come out. It's just, yeah. it's also so self destructive. And I don't think, you know, they're in control of it, unfortunately. Right. Often not in control. I mean, Cassavetes is not a character who's remotely in control of anything in this movie. Whereas Fox. Hey, but you know is. what? I would have been in the mob. You know, if I had a choice, <laughs> would you guys have been in the Jesus mob? <laughs> no. You know, no. it seemed no. dangerous. Do you know why? Wear a suit, hang out all night, smoke cigarettes. You know, something fell off a truck. Like, that stuff seems fun. I don't think they would have let me into the mob. I think I would have had to had to be, like, someone's girlfriend. And I would have... I think I would have been very, like, K from The Godfather, which is very, like, what's going on here? Like, you're doing <laughs> What? Yeah, I I think uh, I I wouldn't uh, want to be in the mob, and they would never let me in. I was about to say the the same thing as Olivia. Yeah, David, I'm like uh, I mean, I'm what's his pants in in The Sopranos? I'm the restaurant owner. I like I'm I like to be friends with everybody. You know what I mean? Like I don't want anyone to be mad at me. Fuck, hmm. what's his name now? How am I forgetting his name? Is it Artie? Artie, Artie Buko, yes, exactly. I mean, what, but what, like, what you're saying, David, is ultimately you want to have a wide social circle and be known for your wit and good company. <laughs> right, but then if Tony is like, hey, go on this cruise, like I got you some tickets, I would start to freak out. I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I can do that, Tony. You know, like I would I would have to acknowledge the elephant in the room all of a sudden, yeah. and it would I be think, awkward. Yeah, I think I would like be that level of friends where you like chat like I'd be that with mm-hmm. Meadow Soprano and know that her dad is Tony and be like, oh my god, Meadow, what's going on? Like, how are you? And like, hope that she <laughs> you gives just me want like the some gossip. Yeah, obviously, David. This is something you and I share, which is that we both of just course. want to hear gossip all the time. All the time. <laughs> One of the cruelest droughts of COVID is the <sighs> gossip. It is drought. so just nothing. Up. That I haven't gotten to like hear about the relationship troubles of a tertiary friend in a year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My favorite thing is that I'm in a bar. I overhear someone else talking, right? Like at yeah. the party. And I'm just like, catch me up on this. What is this? Tell how, me all about it. How much would it. you pay to be like at a bar listening to the couple next to you having a fight right now? Oh, my God. <laughs> but you know what's another one I miss, which is connected to this, is 
you go out with like a couple of friends, right? Not a large group or in a larger group, you splinter off into a smaller group. And like you're between two people who know each other very intimately. And so because you're in the physical space, but they want to talk about something personal that happened, they just let you hear everything. You know, when someone's like, I'm sorry, I'm sure this is boring you. You're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And then they start describing the most intimate details of their life. And it's just like, they would never tell me this independently, but just because we're in the same corner. You're like smushed into the corner of the booth and you're like, I can't, I'm not getting out. Right. And you're like, like, and they're like, fine, then I guess you just hear everything. Then I, then I don't have any secrets. I miss it too. Um, But yeah, Mikey and Nikki level. No, I think if Nikki called me, I would be like, "Ah, I'm sorry, Nikki. I I just, I'm, I just got in bed. I I don't think I can come hang out tonight. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm definitely not going to run to his apartment and get bricks thrown at me. And, you know, and then so This is also a movie that's like, oh, like, because if I if I were Mikey and it were 2021 and I had a cell phone and I saw Nikki call me at midnight, I'd be like, I'm asleep. I can't. You. I can't do this. But on like the landline, you can't you can't screen the call mm. on the landline. It's true. See, I feel like you but you're even though they're your bad friends, you got to help. Well, that's the thing with the bad friend, though, is yes, that's true. And you want to and then but don't you feel like Ben, sometimes with the bad friend, there is some moment where you're like, you know what, I feel like this always turns out the same way. And I should probably, uh, you know, I love you, but I I don't think I can help. Right. Like you, you, you sometimes you got to draw some kind of boundary. Um, but yes, I know what you mean. There's, there's sometimes there's the bad friend. I mean, I should have drawn boundaries. I wouldn't have gotten arrested or <laughs> gotten to a car accident in my life, you know, sure. like, yeah. but I feel like that's just sometimes those are the relationships you have. And I, I don't know. It's also cause you grew up and you're a kid, you know, like since you know each other, since you're a yeah, kid, you've yeah. known someone forever. I think yeah. that's like a huge part of it, which, because they keep like hammering it home in the movie. They're like, you knew my brother who died. Like you knew my parents, like blah, blah, blah. And like, if my, my like oldest friend is still a good friend of mine. And if she called me at midnight, I'd be like, what's going on? Like, are you good? Yeah. I think that's a huge turning point in the movie because i i certainly like i watch it under the assumption like oh these are two guys who know each other from like the trade they know each other from the same bad business right and then when you realize like no they've known each other since they were children like they've grieved people together it predates all of that that's when you sort of understand the nature of their relationship but then also why it's like it's it's uh, you know, it's twice as cutting that, uh, you know, Mikey is willing to sell him out, but it also makes twice as much sense because it's like this guy has been something of a burden on him for decades, you know? I mean, he's just been putting up with this forever. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, we should mention that on the side, Ned, Ned Beatty has been contracted to kill uh, Nikki and is treating it like an annoying like plumbing job it's so funny that like he's like oh god i gotta do this thing <laughs> like he's <laughs> like i'm if i bring in a driver i'm not gonna make as much money off of it like it's fully just like i think that's such a funny quirk in the writing that's like no no no, no. he's not like some stealth killer he's just like a dude who has a no. job he, he has the energy of an uber driver right yeah Absolutely. And he basically breaks even on the job. Like he's yeah. not right. He's not like 
you're going to give me $25,000 in un, you know, non-sequential bills. He's just like, ah, fuck, I guess it's just about worth it for me to commit the act of murder. Right. He also, like, at one point says, like, when they're in the office of, let me say, Sanford Meisner, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Hell yeah. He's like, he's like, oh, I know, I, I, need, I need a hit or something. He says something like that, which is like, is he bad at his job too? Is he kind of like a oh, clunky yeah. hitman who's like, this is the guy they put on Nikki because they like don't care. They're like, just at some point, make sure he's dead. Oh. Right. Cause Nikki is eminently killable. Like yeah. Nikki is definitely not <laughs> the cat and mouse type. You don't need, right? you don't need Jason Bourne <laughs> right. to get Nikki. You'll just <laughs> like, like any of us could do it if we were like, okay with taking a life. I, like it would be easy. It's that great scene at the end of the movie when Fox in the car with him and he's like doing what you said, David, like talking about like, I mean, I had to pay my way out here at the hotel where I'm going to, I mean, I was barely going to make money now i'm gonna lose money on this yes and then fox says like this shouldn't have been a hard job and he goes like i know and that's why this is gonna really ruin my reputation (laughs) you know nikki almost outfoxed me nikki right right (laughs) and he only outfoxed i would like to watch he's so chaotic that you can't predict his movements anymore he's like a poker player who doesn't know the rules right like he's like yeah "Yeah, let's just go to a graveyard now sorry i love you what were you saying no, I was just going to say, I would watch the movie that is like Ned Beatty's just like normal oh, job career as right. a hitman who's <laughs> just like, I got to sit in this car. <laughs> like, well, he also like he has that that Uber driver energy where it's just like you're making me really depressed now. You won't stop talking about how much it is fucking up your day that you have picked me up. You right, know, it's like that you're the inconvenience here. It's like he had other things to do. Right. <laughs> like you made him make a second stop. Uh, there was a thing on the Blu-ray where they said that he requested that his pants be too short uh, on his costume uh, to show that he was not glamorous. I mean, it is this thing. I know you were saying, like, I mean, 72 is like Godfather in this sort of modern wave yeah, of sure. mob movies being redefined and everything. But I, I still think there are so few movies about the crime world where people are this unglamorous. This is what I'm trying to say. When Goodfellas comes out 20 years after The Godfather, it's like, okay, finally a movie about how the mob really is. It's a bunch of assholes who commit murder for no good reason. This is not this burnished American legend. It's really just kind of like crooks and jerks and ego and, you know, like it's all bullshit. Like that's what's so good about The Goodfellas. And it's and yet at the same time you watch Goodfellas and you're like I mean it looks like a pretty good time being a mobster right like that's right. sort of the Scorsese Copacabana, magic yeah. that's from, this movie is like 15 years earlier and like you're saying it's like dealing with the you know the the scum on top of the scum that is like the American crime world and it feels yeah. like completely revolutionary but that's your job like. You clock in and you get to be a, a, a fucking asshole and run around mouth <laughs> off. Ben, I just want to ma- I just want to say something. I don't think you clock into the mafia. That's the only thing I want to correct you on. I think I think one, David, one no, you got to clock in or else the union gets on your ass. <laughs> yeah, David, I mean, how else are they going to track billable hours? You can't yes. be no call no show to the yeah. mob. <laughs> the mob actually has really good overtime pay. It just seems exciting. Yeah, it does. Doesn't it seem exciting? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, no, but I, I mean, I remember reading some interview uh, with Bill Hader where he was talking about like developing Barry 
and how HBO just so badly wanted him to do a show that they were like, whatever you want to do, anything you want to do, you can create, direct it, star in it, whatever it is. We just want to be in business with you. And they like sent Alec Berg to him to help him develop it. And he was like, do you have any ideas? And Hader was like, I want to do a show about a hitman. And Berg was like, that's stupid. Hitman stuff sucks. It's always so boring. When when it was announced, I was like, oh, fuck off. He's doing a Hitman? Fuck that. I'm not interested Sunglasses and like skinny ties and shit. Right. And Hater's whole approach was just like, but like in real life, Hitman can't actually be glamorous, right? right? Like it's probably just like they're just completely broken you know, unsexy uh, uh, people who are just doing kind of like grunt work. Uh, And it feels like there's very few things that treat crime that way. This being another one of them, you know, where it's just like, uh, oh, these guys, it's just like, it's fucking worn them down, you know? Randomly, gross point blank is kind of like that. Where John Cusack is just kind of like, yeah, he's just a guy and his job happens to be that he's an assassin. And it's like, he has to go back home. <laughs> I think I think Gross Point Blank has like the internal life of it down. But but Cusack is still just a little bit too innately cool. Too hot. I don't I don't say that as a strike against the movie. I think the movie rules. But it's like Cusack makes it feel like a movie cuz he's just, he's just too well, fucking hot. He's just hot like a cool. movie star. He's right. like he's it's impossible to like not be like that's a hot person right peter falk is like a hairy laundry bag with a glass eye you know <laughs> he sure is and i love him i do i want to shout out sanford meisner uh who olivia mm-hmm. briefly shouted out who plays the mob boss who is pretty fantastic uh in that yeah. one scene who is in i believe like three movies total. obviously one of the most famous acting teachers alive right what did he do oh, the other movies no, uh, what is, what is you're saying? Famous teacher, acting teacher. He did. It, it, there's literally it's called the Meisner technique, and it's like oh, one of like sure, the formative sure. schools okay. of acting. Yeah, yeah. Griffin, I, have Griffin, have you ever done Meisner exercises? Yeah, are you a Meisner? I'm I'm not a Meisner person. I've done the exercises. I assume you have as well, Olivia. Yeah, I had yeah. to do them in high school because my teacher was a a student of Uta Hagen, so they got like passed down. But it doesn't I don't think it works on teenagers. I don't think they have like the capacity to like understand the repetition or like what it's supposed to no, teach no. you. I I did them when I was young and I found them kind of tedious. Right? It's just kind of like repeating yourself. You just have to keep doing the scene over and over again. Is that what it is? No, it's not even that. So it's like Ben, just like say anything to me right now. I think it would be cool to work for the mob. I think it would be cool to work for the mob. I think it would be cool t- to work for the mob. I think it would be cool to work for the mob. You do that for two hours straight. <laughs> you do it for oh, so God. long <laughs> until it just like doesn't even sound like words sure. in your right. brain sure. anymore. And you're like, and that's that's when the acting really begins. That's when the truth comes out. Oh when God. the words stop meaning anything. I have a Sanford Meisner story. Can I tell it briefly? It has nothing to do with Please. anything really, Please. but I do have one. So when my grandmother... What turned eighty years old in the year two thousand and two? My grandmother is a was a uh, an English professor who lived in Utica, New York. Uh, she decided she wanted to go to the Caribbean for her eightieth birthday, and we were simply just going to have to go to the Caribbean with her on like Christmas of two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. So we were like, okay. She rented a big house that the whole family was going to stay in. We arrive there, and there's this fucking crazy old man who runs the house who lives there. He looks like 
Dr. Livingston from the jungle. He's got like a big long white beard and a cane and he's got like a white hat. You know what I mean? He's like just sort of like a weird mm. guy uh, who lives in the Caribbean and his name is James Carville, but he's not that James Carville. <laughs> wow. And he's like, where are you from? And she's like, I'm from Utica, New York. He's like, oh, me too. Which is absurd on the face of it already. No one is from Utica, New York. But that's so then people are doing that. And we're like, so who are what's your deal? Why do you, this random white guy, live in Beckway in the Grenadines, like in this house? And he's like, Well, I, I'm I'm the lo- I was the longtime companion of Sanford Meisner, who used to live here with me until he died. And now I just, you know, maintain the home. Uh, because he died like t- 10 years ago and I just live here. He's still alive. I just Googled him. The house was full of pictures of Sandy Meisner and I stayed in his house for a week one time. That's it. Wow. That's the story. That's a good story. Tell the story again, David. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to repeat it back to you actually. <laughs> he, I, I just Googled him. He's 90 years old. He's wow. still fucking kicking. James Carville. Lives in Beckway. His his big thing That's too. It. I mean, I feel like Cassavetes in particular was really trying to evolve a lot of the Meisner stuff. But it was like he'd give you a line of dialogue was another exercise, and he'd give one line to each actor on stage, and you didn't say it until something compelled you to say the line. Like he was all about like trying to shake right. acting out of feeling like people saying cues. You know, and like, wouldn't it be like someone would touch you and you, that's when you say the line, right? Well, like it would be like, like that. that's that might happen. If that happens and that inspires you to say the line, then you do it, you know. But it was also like, I'll sit here for 45 minutes in silence rather than let you say the line because you think it's time. This all sounds so exhausting. It's a thing. It's like, it's like that very Cassavetes thing of being like, it has to be truthful. It right. can't be like showy or you can't be like capital A acting. It has to come from They're like trying to get you out of your head, right? Like trying yeah, to make exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. It's a thing like that Fincher thing of being like, if you do 50 takes, you're going to break and eventually you'll just become like a person. <laughs> that that <laughs> was the whole right. thing was just like trying to like get people to unlearn the artifice of all acting styles up until that point, you know? Um, but a lot of it, you know, I, I don't know. I feel especially in today's day and age where we're decades past naturalism being the most, uh, you know, in vogue thing in acting. And I feel a lot of times people, it's more about this saying you've done it. Right. It's like I got my degree, but right. You don't actually, you know, use it every day. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I fuck. I don't know any of it. This all sounds so complicated to me. I'm like Laurence Olivier. I'm like, have you tried acting? That's what I would be like. I'm just like, say the words really loud. That'll probably do something. Well, that's like like when I went to I went to NYU and there's like I knew so many actors and there's like a billion. Like if you go to NYU to be an actor, they put you. You're all in a different studio, and so they're all learning a different way yeah. to act. Mm. And I was just like, how are there so many? different ways to do this (laughs) like i also i just always have felt it's not super practical to go pot committed for one school of acting i don't think uh it often serves you very well to be like this is always how i act this is always my process because the circumstances of the project you're working on might not be conducive to that process Right. Um, I've always sort of tried to just like pick and choose shit. 
for whatever yeah. works. But then sometimes when I look at work that I think is sloppy of mine, I'm like, oh, that's because I don't have like a fundamental, like classical thing to fall back on. But I also think some people like will uh, like look at like a Daniel Day Lewis or like a Christian Bale yeah. and be like, these guys do go like method every time. And so like that's what works. And it's like that you can't make that like broad statement of like this one thing will work for everyone or like committing to one style will like work for everyone that that also gets you fucking like suicide squad joker and also it's just yeah jared leto is like the offender right most most material cannot uh uh sustain that level of commitment to a performance right like most characters are not deeply written enough for you to be able to pack that much fucking methody shit into the performance and also uh it's just like they you, you know most things these days they don't give you any fucking time to rehearse you know you have to shoot like 20 pages in a day it's just uh, they're changing everything on the fly they're rewriting stuff constantly I mean, especially in tv it's just very hard to have that sort of uh preciousness about your work they're not shooting a million feet of film as they did in the movie Mikey and Nikki. Right. A million and a half, actually. Right. Everything feels a little more on rails than it was in the 70s. Yeah. They got to they gotta save their money or whatever. I don't know what they got to do. But, um, guys, are there scenes... I, I, Mikey and Nikki is a very difficult movie to pin down. I'm yeah. trying to think, like, what we right. need to talk about. Because it, it's not like... I don't know. There aren't like you. They go to the graveyard. They go to the bar. They go... They fight in the street. They go visit Carol Grace... Nikki goes to see his wife, which yeah. is a really good scene. I was going to say we should; th- those are the two things we should really uh, talk about. I mean, the the, 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 two, the two scenes with the women, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the grave scene. I mean, and and when when Mikey goes to his wife at the end, I think that scene. Like, I think all the women are uh, really like, yes, really great in this movie. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, Joyce Van Patten plays uh, uh, Cassavetti's wife. Yes, Jan, uh, and then Rose Auric is Annie. Um, also, William Hickey is like the the mob right-hand man who just has one of the best voices ever. Yeah. The voice of Dr. Finkelstein. Voice of Dr. <laughs> Finkelstein, yeah. Uncle Lewis and Christmas Vacation. Um, uh, just uh, rules. Do you know that she wanted the president of Paramount to play, I, I think, yes. the Meisner role? Yeah. Possibly the Meisner role, but a gangster pretty funny right and then the chairman of gulf and western wouldn't let it happen you can't do that how, how dare you that's an immoral role for our president to be playing like as if anyone would fucking know who that was right. <laughs> it's not right. like audience is gonna be like jesus the president of paramount right it was just uh anyone? lane may saying fuck you no one else was gonna get it yeah exactly just yeah he's a gangster it's a uh, joke the nelly scenes are just so uh brutal uh, I mean, because it's like Cassavetes keeps on pitch. I, I, I just keep on calling them by their actor names, but it's also because yeah, it's, uh, it's easy to get Mikey and Nikki confused as names. But um, uh, he keeps on throwing out all these different ideas of what he wants to do. I mean, this movie, it's it's uh, I was realizing it's like kind of similar to to 25th Hour in a way where it's like to some degree, this right. guy knowing I'm probably not going to make it to tomorrow. What are the things I want to do on my, my last, last night, night mm-hmm. on Earth? Right. He's he's kind of acting like you need to help me get out free 
But really, I think he knows there's no real shot of that happening. Uh, another thing, just I love the way people in the 70s talk about going to the movies. I think it just it, it's much like the beer thing. But I think it speaks to how different movie going culture was in the 70s where they just never talk about a particular movie. It's just the idea of like, I love the movies. Let's go see a movie. What time is it? 11.45 on a Tuesday? Did you see the poster <laughs> on the box office? The, an adult was 150. You could just go. (laughs) Right. It's just like, oh, let's just go. Why not? We get a beer and then go see a movie and they both cost a dollar. He's even like, there's 15 minutes of coming attractions. A cartoon, a newsreel. (laughs) Yeah, you get it all. Yeah. This sounds unbelievable. But he's like, they got got a 24-hour candy stand. (laughs) I love how much this guy loves candy. (laughs) I Yeah, I would love to just, like a 24-hour movie theater sounds incredible. It's just like, it's 3 a.m., might as well go see a I mean, picture right now a movie theater sounds don't incredible. get me yeah, started I agree. Like, don't get me the started. idea of it's sort of like look all right like once it hits midnight we only run two screens in this here multiplex but like they're going if you yeah. want to just pop in yeah what's well, also the way that like even like people like scorsese will talk about movie going when they were growing up where it's just like you just show up You just show up at whatever time you feel like it and you come in and maybe you're like 30 minutes before the end of one movie, but then you'll get to see like a cartoon and like a one reeler and then they'll play another movie. And then maybe you wait long enough that you see the first movie you came into late start up again. So then you catch up with it. Right. Right. It was just kind of like what's playing. I used to work at a movie theater and every so often you'd get a person who'd come in and say, what's what's playing soonest? What's playing next? And just buy a ticket right. for literally whatever. A hero. And I was always like, who are you? Like, what's, what is your deal? I like this energy. I agree with David. Heroic. <laughs> the, the music, the, that song, you know, the, the real human, that starts yeah. playing. I know it's about Sully, yeah, but yeah. when you saw that man, it was about him. Yes. He's a real hero. Joey, uh, Joe Biden comes out, gives him a, a, a Kennedy Center honor. <laughs> yeah, right. He pins something to his chest. He goes like, you're what makes America work, my friend. You're great at seeing movies. Come on, man. Come on, dude. Come on, guy. <laughs> you know who's low-key kind of funny? Biden. Joe Biden. I'll say this. I'm having, I mean, just now I had more fun saying two sentences in a bad Joe Biden impression than I've had four years of doing fucking bad Trump you know, impressions. We were all so stressed out. We're like, Joe Biden has to save the democracy. And I feel like we're just about to get to the point where it's like, you remember who's kind of like a funny old guy is yeah. Joe Biden. I saw I saw like a tweet today that was like, Joe Biden's team is looking into something. And I had a moment where I was like, oh, yeah, he's the president. He's the president. He's the president of the United States when he says goes. Right. He's got the energy of a guy who's trying to break up a fight at a Margaritaville, you know? Come on, <laughs> come on, come on, come on also, guys. I mean, I think, I can't remember if it was Alex Perrin or, or Jamel Bowie or someone tweeted, like, remember when Corn Pop was real? Like, that, like, <laughs> he told that story and everyone was like, well, he's just having an episode. And then they, like, called people in Delaware in the 60s and they're like, yeah, we knew Corn Pop. <laughs> he was this guy. He walked around with a razor blade. You had to yeah. look out for him. Yeah, he's a bad he was a bad customer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Joe Biden's in this movie? Do you think Joe Biden has ever seen a Casamitty movie? This movie. Yeah. Th- that's the sequel, is, is Joey and Corn Pop. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Elaine May's follow-up. I think almost definitely, yeah. 
I just yeah. I think Definitely. I don't know the last time uh, Joe Biden saw a movie this challenging, but I think in the seventies he thought saw all of this shit. Also, he was kind of hot when he was a younger he man. Was. He was. That is true. He's sort of normie hot. He was very hot. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. Uh, did Joe Biden see Mikey and Nikki? It's a huge question. I don't think so. Because this movie was kind of a flop. He was already a U.S. senator when this film came out. I just want to point out. Yeah. <laughs> this movie was a flop. It was underseen. Uh, it was not seen, I think is the best way to put it. They put it out in December. It's but what people like, say the movie re- wasn't released. It was it, it escaped. I mean, it was like a contractual obligation that they had to put it in a theater. But it had been years at this point. There was a whole calamity where a lot of the footage didn't sync up with the sound. Yes. Uh, she wouldn't stop filming. They... Uh, tried to take the cut away from her. She hid reels in someone she else's and Peter garage. Falk. Peter yes. Falk was also like stealing reels with her because at this point he had like put money into the movie. Yeah, and it was like it has to be hers. I think right. I think the version we all know is the version that uh, she screened later in the eighties. It's the third during version. some tribute. There are three versions. There's the one that came out that she didn't really like. She did a cut in nineteen eighty six that then got screened and released on home video and everything and became the known version. And then the Criterion version now is even a little bit different. I could not get a comprehensive explanation of what the differences are. But this is like the 2019 final cut, as it were. This is also really interesting to me because it's interesting to think of the web that like she and Kenneth Lonergan have like spun oh, together. Yeah. yeah. Because it's like hey. because it's like he had all that shit with Margaret. Jeannie Berlin is in Margaret. Like they both mm-hmm. have like troubled release schedules. And then she's in the Waverly gallery yes. two years ago, like wins a Tony. L- like- Lonergan's my favorite and watching all these movies and, and reading about Elaine May. I just keep thinking like, Oh, see her career was essentially just four Margaret's in a row. Yeah, exactly. Every time she made it a movie, it got caught up in a lawsuit. <laughs> you guys should do a Margaret bonus up. That should be Elaine's bonus up. I want to do Lonergan. Does he have a movie? Am I crazy that he's working on a movie right now? Did I make that up? I've been up? waiting for something. I hope so. Because, you know, he did that miniseries. He did um, Howard's End. I feel like that consumed him for a bit. Obviously, he does theater. I guess no. I guess I'm just sort of waiting on four movies is enough. You know? That's the thing. I think four is just like the minimum for us. Richard Kelly and Kenneth Lonergan make a fourth movie challenge. Right, make a, absolutely make a fourth movie challenge. Wait, Griff, I want to bring you back to the women. Though. I want to bring Carol the Carol Gray scene especially. Yes, yeah, yes. So she has two scenes. Yeah, yeah. He's talking her up, right? He's sort of running through all the different things he's thinking about doing with Peter Falk. He wants to go visit his mother's grave. They have the scene on the bus where he gets in the fight. Uh, I mean, all that shit's so good. Um, but uh, yes, then they show up to her house, and it's this scene that has uh, a huge Griffin energy of uh Cassavetes introduces uh Peter Falk to the woman he's been sleeping with and then proceeds to just uh sleep with her in front of Peter Falk and say over and over again pretend that no one else is here uh which was a lot of high school for me you should clarify which guy you are Griffin <laughs> Peter Falk. <laughs> you're the okay. Foxster in that, okay. in that I'm scenario. the Foxster yeah yeah I what one guy's fucking and one guy's fucking and I was definitely fucking um <laughs> I think like her like her role in this movie is like so like wrapped up in like kind of what like being a woman is where it's like oh he like Casavetes is like oh you can fuck her too and then like 
But then he gets mad at her for, like, sleeping with other people. So it's like, what are you going to get mad at her about? For, like, not sleeping with people or for sleeping with people? Right. Like, And, and Falk is so cruel to her. Falk? You know? Yeah. Yeah. He, they get violent with her. But also, and this, like, I mean, like, Cassavetes is, like, pushing him to be cruel. Like, telling yeah. Yeah. him that she likes it. Yes, that's a great point, Olivia. It does get into this sort of, like sort of emotionally incurious, underdeveloped, uh, abusive man who uh, blames the woman for why do you make me so upset? Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's not her, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And also what's happening to Falk is the longer he's next to Cassavetes, the worse he's getting too. Like he is kind of infected by him the more time they're spending together. And he knows it, I think. Yes. Which is probably why he's, uh, you know, created some distance from this guy. I mean, they both have young children, but Cassavetes doesn't even see his kid, who's much younger. And Falk actually, like, knows who his son is, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, But yes, it's it's this horrible scene where, like, as as, uh, uh, Cassavetes and Nelly are sleeping together, you just stay on a close-up of Peter Falk just squirming there uncomfortably. It's the close-up, but it's also the wide shot where it's like they are on the left and well, you can see him in the kitchen just yes. like kind of sitting there. Yes. Like uncomfortably. But, but once like the actual like, you know, it, it super physical shit yeah. is happening, then it's just on his face. Yeah. You're just hearing them and you're hearing them deny that he's in the room. And then once they're done, they go back to that shot you're talking about where Cassavetes meets him in the kitchen and is trying to tell him that like, no, you should have sex with her too. She sleeps with everybody. Just go over there, do this, do that. And you're watching her in the foreground listen to them speak as if she can't hear them. And it's so brutal. You just like this pit in your stomach is growing just in dread about what's going to happen when Falk walks up to her. And then it's like as bad as you imagine. Yeah. There's nothing gets like you're not nothing is like subverted or anything. It's like you see it the way it's going to go. And it just feels awful the whole time. Right. And then when they they leave there, you know, I mean, he slaps her. She screams. They leave. And then Fox starts acting like, was this some prank on me? Were you setting me up to look like a fool? Right. To get rejected from her. I think yeah. it's this really interesting thing where it's like the woman is there not even like as a person, but as a thing for them to like, like it's a, it's like a lens through which their relationship is working. It's like, she's not a person. She's like an object and like Nikki is cool for sleeping with her and then Mikey can't sleep with her. So it's right. like affects their relationship and it has nothing to do with how she feels about like any right. of it she's like not even a person in the situation right and then when when he goes back to her and she tries to be emotionally open with him his explanation is so twisted about like well i heard you had slept with them and that made me angry so then i wanted you to sleep with other people yeah after he kicks the door in right like just like so violent from the from the start from the jump of that scene but you have that scene too where he starts like uh you know like chatting up the woman and then her boyfriend comes in tries to start a fight with him like he is just a guy who feels like he creates chaos to keep himself entertained you know and to some degree it's like he just wants everyone to be spinning he wants everyone to be spinning around him and he wants 
himself to be the one sort of like centered force that everyone is 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 revolving around. Absolutely. Yeah. And then yeah, he goes to see his own wife. Uh played by is that that's Joyce Van Patten. That's Joyce right? Van Patten, yeah. Uh, the sister of Tim Van Patten, we know him well, mm-hmm. director of many a Soprano. Uh, formerly married to Dennis Dugan, appears in the Grown Ups movies as Rob Schneider's wife. Well, okay, he goes to he goes to his wife and he's like, "Listen, they're gonna kill me." He's like, "This is this is what's happening." And then he like goes to see his kid, and he just wants the kid to like put her hand around his finger, and she. Mm-hmm. A baby who was sleeping obviously like does not want to do that. And that is kind of sad that he like wants this one moment with his child before he gets she shot. She knows it's over. And he can't do it. And then they have that whole exchange where they like have their kiss and it's mm-hmm. like it's like, uh, I don't like this, but I like get it. I get why you would do this. And then she like asks I think she like asks him to leave almost. She's like you gotta go now. Or uh, he's, I mean, yeah. yeah, every scene in this movie is so brutal. I'm having a hard time. Yeah, as especially you Especially at the end. Like, David, you're saying it's hard to describe the plot of the movie, but it's also, like, I just, I, it's hard to, like, relive it. It's hard yeah, to, it, like, it, it explain is. the things that happen in the scene. It hurts. It really bums me out, this yeah. movie, I will yeah. say. Every time I've seen it, I think I've seen it three times, I really am in kind of a a crammy crummy mood yeah for the next hour and a half you know what I, mean? I just sort of feel because the the just him dying and him screaming and yelling and banging on the door is just so he like it's humiliating it's like you know the, the, that we're cutting back to Falk and his wife and they're like you know they're sort of living through it and she's saying oh no like it's just so ugh, god it really like gives me the heebie-jeebies which is in my opinion very successful of it the naturalism is off-putting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's look. I, I it, it's a movie I respect greatly, and it is easily my least favorite of her four movies. Probably because it's the only one that isn't funny. That the other ones at least have comedy to cut the discomfort, you know. And this one just <laughs> is like a favorite. torrid watch. I get it being your favorite. I mean, this is once again, I'm in a minority on this one. I think it might be my favorite. This. It's also like there are a couple funny moments but yeah. like it's yeah, like a there's real, funny moments like i think one of the things this movie does really well is like sometimes they'll be fighting with each other and then one of them will like say something that's like come on like blah, blah, blah. and it's like a funny moment and that again is just like that is what it's like when you're like fighting with a friend you've known for a while and you're like but we can still like make a joke right <laughs> like i mean yeah i mean this guy's enormous is my personal favorite laugh line but there's a lot of little bits yeah. like that i think i think nick you're making me forget the cottage is really funny for some reason <laughs> I mean, that's, like, <laughs> that's it's so funny but it's also like you are kind of just like oh my god nikki shut up like, yeah it's, but it's also it's like they're they're in like a catholic graveyard and he's saying the cottage it's like <laughs> Peter Falk is such a sweetie in that scene. It's crazy. But Cassavetes is so pathetic in this. Like, it's not that he usually plays high-status characters. Although, I mean, I I think as a four-higher actor, he was so intense, he often did, right? But in his own movies, he plays broken men, but he's not as sad as he is in this, you know? Yeah, he's cooler usually, honestly. Yes, he's usually a lot cooler than he is here. Yeah. And and this guy is just so transparently miserable. Uh yeah. And and destructive, you know, to everyone who comes into his orbit. 
Um, absolutely. Uh, Cassavetes. Are we going to do him one day, Griff? He was That'd in the bracket. I assume he got bodied. That would be kind of a bummer of a miniseries, you guys. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is why I, I'm guessing that no one voted for him. I mean, it's a very... It's it, it's a miniseries we could wrap our arms around. It's not he doesn't make that many movies. No. It's like twelve total or something. You know, like it's it's, it's certainly yeah. doable. Yeah, um, he's facing off against Robert Altman. Whew. Oh, he's gonna lose. I don't know if he's gonna survive. It will, yeah. it will have happened at this point. I, it's I know I know, but we're predicting the future. But I yes. think you're right, Griffin. I don't think he gets out of that first round matchup. And also, I think in real life, Altman would have crushed him. Altman was like a, he, a brick shit house, yeah. and Cassavetes, <laughs> you know, as much as we're saying he looks tall, like he wasn't a big guy. No, I think he's like five six or something. Like he, yeah. he and I could have probably like looked eye to eye. Do you know that my dad went drinking with both of them once? Huh? <laughs> well, your dad went drinking with Altman a lot. My dad, he, my dad was Altman's drinking buddy Patreon for like episode. five years. Yeah, the worst five years of Altman's career. My dad was the guy who had to like carry him out of bars. But so Cassavetes just showed up at some point or like they just had a wild night together? I mean, I, for reasons I, I don't want to uh, delve into and I haven't followed up with him, he's never really uh, disclosed a lot of details of what happened that uh -huh. night. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably for my own safety. Did they buy f 15 cups of cream? <laughs> Mikey and Nikki, is there anything else you want to say before we play the box office game are we playing the box office game i mean have we done 76 before the movie very abruptly ends with him yeah that know, last scene is kind of getting moited brutal. he he tracks mikey back to his home after mikey and nikki have split up and Mick, mikey has spent a good chunk of time with uh mm at walsh uh meeting sanford meisner sort of defending himself for how much mm at walsh has fucked it up and not him uh and uh it goes back to his wife uh nikki tracks him down bangs on the door uh they just grab each other and sort of like stand there in silence trying to wait him out and then just fucking out of nowhere i mean it's also just the fact that she doesn't cut to some reverse angle of a car pulling up right you're just looking at cassavetes on one side of a door knocking and then all of a sudden a bunch of squibs go off yeah and it's that very like i keep beating this drum but it is that very theatrical thing of like of like it's heightening it's heightening it's heightening and then he gets shot and it's just like cut to black like right that's it it's done. over like done roll the credits roll the credits he's what's dead. his final line doesn't he just say like you should go in the bedroom yeah he's like you should go to sleep or something yeah like, right right and she is giving a really good performance there where she like keeps trying to explain to him why she can't let him in and she's like running out of things to be like uh i'm sick uh yeah like he's not home uh like and then they have to barricade the door like they have to bear it because he's kicking it down. But he also is, his heart is also kind of not in it in a weird way as much as yeah. he is so exposed in that, like, he just keeps asking her to open the door. Like, you know, he should just barrel through the door or whatever. Or, like, run or something. It's like he, yeah, he's, run, like, exactly. very committed to, like, staying in front of the door. It's like he wants to die with his friend, you yeah. know, and yeah. kind of hold it over him, like, in this kind of sad way. I think it also is, like, if his friend isn't willing to let him in, then he's done fighting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, if his right. friend yes, won't let yes. him in anymore, 
then he's already lost the battle. How's he going to survive? Right, right. Yeah. exactly. Because yeah. I think they, at one point, they're like, they're like, this is his only friend. This is like his last friend. And so it's like, if he loses, he's already lost his family. If he loses Mikey, it's like, what's the point? Yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, I think we've done this year, Griffin. I can't remember. Maybe Caged Heat. Well, exactly. Right. All those Demi movies. Um, I mean, what was the number one movie in 1976? Uh, uh, Caged Heat 74. The number one movie of 1976. It's the year before Star Wars. True. Jaws is 75, correct? Yeah. Is it not Rocky? It's Rocky. It's not Jaws. Uh, Jaws is 76. Right? Uh, 70- 75. Five, like you said. Yeah, you know, it's Rocky. Yeah. Rocky is the number one movie. Yeah. Okay. It is. It's wow. number one. Wow. It was a big hit. Yeah. People liked it. Doesn't Rocky win a screenplay Oscar? No, only nominated. Okay. I always like switch it up in my head as to like what happens because Rocky wins best picture. It wins picture, director, yeah. score, right? Yeah. Editing. Editing, not score. Don't. It doesn't win score? Not even nominated for score. So maybe there was something up. I don't re- that doesn't make any sense that it wasn't nominated because the score is incredible. Yeah. Best score goes to The Omen, which to be fair is an iconic score. Sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know why. Maybe maybe they made some ruling on that. And it doesn't win song either. Uh it loses to well, the number 2 movie of 1976. Hmm. A big movie with a big musical star. Uh is it like The Way We Were? Close. Is it a Barbara? Right star. Streisand? It's a Barb. Is it Yentl? No, it's a bad movie. It's a bad movie, and it's not... Uh, is it a musical, or is it a song with... A movie with a big song? It's a it's a musical, it, you know, not like, you know... Is a, it the Barbara Star is Born? It's a Star is Born. That was the number two movie That's of its crazy. year? That's crazy. Barbara. Because that movie is not very good. No, it stinks. It was like slammed at the time. People didn't even like it. The yeah, time. it was one of those things where like, even though it was a big hit, you know, like by any means, it, lost it was money. expected yeah. to be an even bigger Damn, hit. Right. Really? You know, any, like, movies could just be hits <laughs> in the 70s. <laughs> they sure could, <laughs> yeah. Olivia. Number three is another famous remake bomb that hmm. still made a ton of money. It's a famous remake bomb that still made a lot of money. It's a 76 remake. What decade is the original from? 30s. It's a 30s movie. Remade in the 70s. And it's been remade again, my friend. And let me tell you, you know, this this fella that this movie's about, he's going to be in screens this year. He's going to be in screens this year? Is it a real person or it's a character who's been rebooted several times? It's a character that's been rebooted several times, and he's not human. What? He's not humid. Uh, Bumblebee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bumblebee from the from the 30s. I think George Kukar's uh, Bumblebee is the best one, personally. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That the one where he's a movie star, not yeah. a singer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, come on, Griff. Uh, in fact, this is probably the movie that Mikey and Nikki was going up against because it came out Christmas of 1976. Come on. Not human in, in like an animal way or in like a robot way? You're sure he, he's, a, he's sure an animal. <laughs> he's sure an animal? Oh, he's sure oh, an animal. Oh, oh, it's my good friend. <laughs> yeah, what's his name? My good friend, King Kong. Oh, my God. Yeah. Kingy and Kongy. One of, I, I'll say this, one of my favorite actors. You like that guy? I think he's such a compelling screen presence. What does Kyle Chandler say in that trailer? 
He says something crazy. Oh. He's like, King Kong's out there and he's hurting people. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes. And no, wait, I think who says, I think it's Rebecca Hall says, uh, King Kong bows to no one. Yes, right? that's true. Or is yeah. it, yes, Kong bows to no one. Yeah. Kyle Chandler says, Godzilla's hurting people and we don't know why. <laughs> It's funny, King Kong Did bows. Did we have to, to know why before? <laughs> like, was that an issue? King Kong bows to no one was one of the um, prompts that Sandy Meisner would often use <laughs> in his classes. King Kong bows to no one. Yeah. I love that Rebecca Hall this year is releasing her like directorial debut from like a really touching Nella Larson novella, and also is in <laughs> King Kong. <laughs> My favorite thing about Godzilla vs. Kong is it's got, like all these movies, it's got a bunch of actors in it, and it's like Rebecca Hall, and I'm like, is she in the other ones? And if you told me yes, I'd be like, I guess yeah. she was. I just don't remember. Like, Kyle Chandler's definitely in one of them, right? Like The franchise is so uh, bizarre in terms of which human characters they carry over and which ones they don't. It also is, right. I think someone on the Blank Check Reddit was saying this when the trailer dropped, but just like... For the three of them that have come out at this point, I guess by the time this episode comes out, people will have seen Godzilla versus Kong Godzilla and, and will know who wins. But uh, the the three that we have seen at this point uh, all uh, under deliver on the human element. Like all three of those movies fail yes. in a major way on the human front. And uh, each one has just a wildly overqualified, overstuffed cast. Like each of those movies has 15 names above the title where you're like, wow, all of these people. And one of them kind of makes an impression in each movie. Should we all guess who wins? Should we all guess if it's going to be Godzilla or Kong? I, I, if it's not Godzilla, I don't know what's going on I think on it's going to be Kong. Kong cheated. Like, I, I think they set it up in the trailer. I mean, he's the underdog. Right, yeah, because like Godzilla is a walking nuclear yes, weapon. Yeah, sure. and yes. King Kong is a tall ape. <laughs> and, and King Kong has compassion for humans. It's a love-hate relationship, but he has moments of vulnerability. I think, I want to put on the record, I think they team up to go against Mecha Godzilla, and I think Godzilla sacrifices himself. So I think King Kong is the final victor mm. of the film, but who he is beating is Mecha Godzilla rather than Godzilla, if that makes sense. Because it, the tagline says, one will fall which is yes. a little different from one will definitively win right you know what i mean like it's just because one of them's gonna die i right. think they both go against a common enemy and one of them will die and one of them will defeat the enemy and king kong will be victorious after all it is in his name he is the king kong bows to no one i do just want to say that uh, the the edwards godzilla which i really love i think mm -hmm. makes the you know the the humans being little ants a, a, a strength uh, I, that's why I like that movie. Whereas, like the you know, fucking King of the Monsters, we're spending so much time with humans on their like flying boat, and they're like you know following Godzilla on a map. And I'm like, I, I hate these people. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to these. These guys are idiots. I don't know. There's some. There's something in between the two that is my perfect American Godzilla movie, and no one's hit it yet. Uh, I love the Edwards Godzilla. I think that thing is freaking incredible. I uh, love it except for the human stuff, which I find so annoying. And a lot of that just comes down to my Aaron Taylor Johnson problems. And I think I like him now. Oh, David. Oh, because of Tenet? Yeah, just because of what's he, what he's up to these days. Oh, he executed a temporal pincer movement on your opinions? Temporal pincer movement. Don't you think so? <laughs> it's a temporal pincer movement, mate. He's good in that movie. <laughs> objectively good. He's the best he's ever been in that movie. I'm glad we're all kind of Tenet stands here. Ben, how do you feel about Tenet? I liked it a lot. It confused me. I still don't get it, but... You don't have to. I think once you relinquish the idea of getting it, 
it becomes much mm. more fun. Agreed. It's about vibes. That movie is entirely about like, isn't it fun to tell Thank a story? You. <laughs> Great vibes. Yep. Aren't movies cool? Yeah, I look forward to like being back to normal life and smoking weed with somebody yeah. and being really high and being like trying to figure it out, man. Trying to piece it together. I think if I got super stoned and watched Tenet with like a group of people, we'd all really understand it. <laughs> you know what's a thing to really look forward to? Like like repertory screenings of the movies we had to watch at home. Like, I just am excited to see, like, Tenet at Nighthawk at midnight two oh, years from now. Yeah, I can't wait to see the Kaufman movie or, like, yeah, you know, there's so many examples of that. Like, movies I mean, that our, I, our right. Blanky Awards episode will have come out by this point, but I just watched the, the Kaufman movie and the entire time thought to myself, this would probably be my favorite movie of the year if I had seen it in a theater, and at home, I just can't handle it. Mm. Should watch it again. You know, that's like my, I, st- yeah. I still, I still like it a lot. I don't say it as a negative, but no, it's I just know. like that. That's a, that's a lot of movie. It's tough to take, and at home when your phone is there and you can escape from the discomfort of it, it is hard. Yeah, having the phone really just like it's hard to not just like second screen or just be like I should clean that up. I should pick that thing up yeah, off the floor. Right, you like, know, be, like. There's no third place. It's just like, oh, I'm going to put my phone away and like sit in the dark room. Yeah. Uh, I hate it. What's the number four movie of nice? This is why I feel like we've done this before. It's it's a comedy with a famous duo. I don't think we've done this before. Okay, fine. But uh, this because you talk about this movie a lot. Uh, so maybe we've just talked about it before. We, you talk about it. Is specific- it Silver Streak? Yes. Yeah, I just talk about it a lot. You just talk. Wait, about it you know who's also in that movie? Ned Beatty. <laughs> Ned Beatty. He sure is. Huge 76 for him. And King Kong is also like Grodin's big fucking heartbreak kid follow-up in so many ways. Isn't Silver Streak the one where you're like, there's not actually a ton of prior in that? And it's like... Yeah, he has like three scenes. Right, but they just sort of are discovering the chemistry there. And then then, then it's the Wilder Pryor movies are really about the two of them. Absolutely. Right. Right. It's, I just think that movie's reputation is very bizarre because it is just kind of like a gentle... Hitchcock riff starring Gene Wilder and Jill Clayburgh where they hired Richard Pryor to be like the colorful funny character for two scenes and then uh, they had such good chemistry I think they shoehorned it back in for like a third scene but he is barely a part of that movie I think he doesn't enter until like an hour and 15 minutes in right Um, number five Griffin it's uh, guys being dudes but uh, in a much more dramatic and serious true story kind of way. I love this movie. Guys being dudes in a much more dramatic and serious. It, uh, it's not it's another Hunter. best picture nominee. Is it All the President's Men? It's All the President's Men. Yeah. That's, that, that is guys being dudes. <laughs> Man, the number five movie of its year. Outgrossing. Here's, you know, what's next? The Omen. Wow. Uh, the Bad News Bears. Um, the Enforcer, which I think is the second, no, it's the third Dirty Harry, uh, a movie called In Search of Noah's Ark, which is one of those like pseudo documentary movies. (laughs) It's a guy who's like, I found Noah's Ark. Right. (laughs) Right. It was the, uh, uh, where in the world is Osama bin Laden of its day where everyone went to see it and they were like, there's fucking nothing here. And then, uh, Midway, which is like 
one of those movies that like has an insane cast. It's a big war movie. It's like yeah. Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, Glenn Ford, Hal Holbrook, Toshiro Mufune. And you're like, is that movie any good? They're like, no, God, it's awful. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> <It's> garbage. <laughs> but it was expensive and it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was in but, focus. You know, next year is Star Wars. Like, you know, like you said, like it's 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 all over. I mean, Jaws has already happened or whatever, but right. like, this is the last time. But, but Jaws at this point is like maybe an aberration. They're right. like, maybe that's a once in a generation phenomenon. There isn't going to be a Gone with the Wind every year. And then Star Wars comes out and they're like, there should be a Star Wars every year. I think that also is like, that makes sense. It makes sense to me that all the President's Men made that much money just because like, Watergate had kind of just happened. And so, like, when you yeah. don't have, like, m- like an MCU, you're like, I kind of want to see how this thing that I read about happened starring Robert Redford. Yes. Like, <laughs> but also, like, like the, not not that it's comparable because there's a uh, an ocean between them and quality, but it's just like. The, the fucking Comey Showtime miniseries, everyone was like, oh, no, yeah. thank you. I have no interest in watching this. And I feel like any depiction of the Trump years would have a similar response of just like, I don't care how well executed it is. I don't want to see any version of this story told. Do, do you think in a few years, depending on how things go, that could possibly shift? It was wild to release it while he was still the president. I don't know if like we will ever want that. But I could see maybe like our kids would be like, "What was that?" And was I'd be like, say. "I actually cannot go see that movie with you." I'll be like, I, "Go, go, fucking watch the Comey Rule on Showtime." Yeah, I, I can't talk <laughs> that's, about it. Right. That's the other thing. I just think the media being what it is, we're so fucking burnt out on it. Like by the time that all the presidents men comes out, people know the story, but like they couldn't kind of imagine the day to day of it necessarily, you know? Whereas we've just been inundated with so much reporting and so much conflicting. And it's also like all the president's men is like so much about them piecing together the story. And it's like, which fucking story would you pick? (laughs) Like what? Like, well, you'd have to do the whole four years and I can't actually physically, I cannot do that. And if you pick any one story, you'd be like, but why'd they focus on that? That's a distraction from the real thing. Um, David, here's just a fun exercise I was doing in my head while you were listing those top 10 movies. Just to go like, okay, so who are the 10 stars of the biggest films of this year, right? You're like, okay, so it's Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. He's new. Yeah. He's different. Right. A brand new movie star is the number one, the star of the number one film of the year, right? Right. It's a phenomenon. You you'll, you can't wait to meet him. That That's the kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Number two. Then number two, Barbara Streisand. Big star, established star, Babs Oscar Brooklyn. winner, and Chris Christopherson, yeah. who is a huge musician and, you know, a star in his own right. Number three. Okay. Number three. Can you can you tell me who's in King Kong? Uh, Grodin, Bridges, Lang. I guess Bridges is the biggest name, but arguably Kong is is the guy selling the movie, of right? None of them are on the poster. Only King Kong is on sure. the poster. Yes. But their names are on there. It's just a big illustration of Kong. I mean, their names are not on the poster well, at all. I think you and I, my friend, have been looking at different posters. I don't know what to tell you. It's a classic two guys looking at two different posters situation. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, yeah, the, I mean, you know, the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. Wild thing to say about a King Kong remake. I was going to say it because I was going down this rabbit hole looking at the King Kong posters. That is the most arrogant tagline I have ever heard. <laughs> it really is. 
not even of the year, the most exciting original motion picture of all time. All time. All time. Wild. It's King Kong. He just climbs a different building. That's the only right. take they have. Also, it is funny that Jaws had like just come out. Yeah. And they were like, this is more exciting, actually. It's true. Jaws had already eaten his lunch, even though he comes out a year later. So let's say Kong's the star of that picture. Number Number five. Well, number four is Wilder, Clayberg, Pryor, as we said. Right, but let's say Wilder. I mean, if we want to like focus on one, yes, right? Wilder yeah. for sure. Yeah, five is Redford Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, in in the iconic Redford slash Hoffman billing too, which right. I love. Not first names, yes. But you also like going down that list. It's like Gregory Peck, who's kind of like an Peck. old school movie star at this point. Mathau, Mathau, definitely an old school movie star at this point. Eastwood, Eastwood, uh, Noah. Kind of yeah. an old school yeah. star. Ark. <laughs> that was the billing on that uh, one. It was Noah slash, slash Ark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, you know, and then of course, best picture goes to Rocky. Yeah. Uh, and like, I don't know. I mean, the, the Palm Door goes to Taxi Driver. Like, yeah. it's a pretty good year. It's a great year. It's a great year. And Ned Beatty ran the table on it. He fucking did. He did. This is like the year. This is the last year that John Wayne is in a movie. This is the year the shooters comes out. Wow. This is the first year the Steady Cam, right? The Steady Cam debuts Bound for in glory. Bound for Glory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and then uh, this is the year that Rocky Horror becomes a midnight movie. And this is the year that George Lucas starts to make Star Wars. Like it does feel like a bit of a. And Elaine May is about, is essentially about to be run out of Hollywood. I was going to say, and they made Mikey and Nikki. <laughs> yeah. This is the year that Elaine May goes, says, fuck you, I'm done. And it takes, you know, one of the biggest movie stars in the world 10 years later begging her to make a movie for him with a guaranteed green light to pull her out of, you know, retirement from filmmaking. Right. But she was out at this point. She's out. She was very happy to go back to theater. Went back to theater and being a cool person. Yeah, just being a generally rad lady. Have you guys ever watched the like Nichols and May sketches? Yeah, been been listening, watching a lot of them. Yeah, and prep for this. They were the fucking coolest. They're just so fucking funny. I know, but I also I just can't get over how cool they were. Yeah, in a way that comedians rarely are. You know, and hot. And, and right, they were cool and hot without being like I'm a comedian and now I'm doing a GQ photo shoot. Yeah. They're also like, it's really interesting to like think about both their careers as directors and then like watch those sketches because they are really like doing the thing that both of them like from their actors, which is just yes. kind of like living. They're not like hyping it up for yucks. They're like, there's like every heightening really makes sense is like kind of like grounded in like a real thing. Yeah. They're just incredible. Yeah. They're the coolest. Olivia. You're the coolest. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Guys. Being dudes. Had so much fun. That's good. I'm glad you had so much fun. I'm glad you guys did Elaine May. You got to do Nichols at some point. You got to do Nichols. Is, is do he Nichols. on March Madness? Is he going to win March Madness? Not this year. We no. we put him in last year. He would be fun, though. We'll do him at some point. He he's... It's not that many movies. No. But we would have to do an Angels in America bonus, I would insist. Uh, yeah. God, who's going to win, though? That's the real question. Who is, this... is going to win? I think John Carpenter is going to win. I think hmm. there's going to be yeah. Carpenter favoritism and Ben energy. Like People are going to want to support Ben. Because, Olivia, we've broken the brackets up. We each have a quadrant. 
Yeah. Oh, fun. So Ben picked eight, I picked eight, David picked eight, and then we have one quadrant that's, we asked eight of our recurring guests to each pick one. Oh, that is so fun. Uh, ben, Ben's quadrant's up against my quadrant, is that right? Or is Ben up um, against actually, the... I actually don't know. Okay. I don't know. That's probably unexciting stuff to uh, talk about because people <laughs> at this yeah. point know who it is. That's a great bet. I'm into that. Carpenter fucking rules. Don't you think so, Griff? I don't know. For some I, reason, I, I feel the carpenter. Chance. Yeah, I don't know. You know and, and they we'll like see. to pick a long one. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Olivia. Griffin. Icon- <laughs> iconography. Ugh. Best in the biz. I think it's funny because we haven't done iconography in a minute because I and I are both very busy people. And so now I'm kind of just like, a private citizen who has nothing to promote, but just like likes coming on the pod. Olivia, I'm just hanging out. You're the greatest private citizen I know. Yeah. I what what how was how was Carol Grace described? You know, you have a wide social yeah. circle. No, go ahead. Grace. No, I would just add on to that that Olivia is known for her wit and good company. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. That is like my dream. <laughs> my my dream. My entire life has been to be like a woman about town. That's all I've ever wanted. I mean, Olivia, you were tweeting about Fran Leibowitz, which yeah. is exactly the thing where it's like yeah. I do a couple books 40 years ago and then people just pay to listen to me talk. That is my dream. If someone listening would like to give me a book deal, I could crank out a book for you and then just kind of coast on it. Go to some cool dinner parties. That's what I want for the next 60 years of my life. The fucking anti-Fran Leibowitz pushback is the most predictable <sighs> And, oh, get and out of here. lame shit I've ever seen in my life. You're just fucking jealous that she cracked the code. Yeah. She got <laughs> exactly. she got to live her whole life just being a cranky person who complains about everything being bad. You're just angry right. that isn't your life. She's the only one who figured it and out. And her fundamental take on life is anyone who has sex is cool and anyone who doesn't isn't. And the more the the arc of the universe is bending towards the virgins, and I hate it. <laughs> That's like her whole <laughs> philosophy. And I'm like, hell yeah, Fran. Like the thing that has truly brought me the most joy in the last year has been watching Pretend It's a City Ugh. and watching Martin Scorsese think that everything that Fran Leibowitz says is the funniest thing a single person has ever said. He laughs so oh, yeah. hard at every one of her jokes in a way that I'm like, that is, that's who you need in your life. It makes me want Scorsese to be like someone's fucking Andy Richter. Like some talk show... Needs to just hire Scorsese for residency. <laughs> he just laughs. He just laughs at all your jokes. And he does the full body laugh thing. Like he winces and his shoulders right. shake. He's such a good laugher. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say is that when uh, this is all over, uh, I would love if any New York-based theater would let me show a double, a double screening of Mikey and Nikki in After Hours, which are two movies of course. I think would go great. Back to back, yeah. love like a late night in the city movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna start a movie theater with my Reddit money. I didn't make any money on Reddit, but you know I'm gonna pretend that I did, and we'll do that. I Great. do. I feel like After Hours is a movie where if I tried to watch that now, I would uh, become an uncontrollable sobbing mess. Be a sad mess. boy. Yeah, cause just it's just oh, this is all the shit we don't have right now. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Yeah. Please remember to rate, <laughs> review, and subscribe. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron and AJ McKeon. Thanks to 
Leigh Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song, Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to our Shopify page for some real nerdy shirts. Tune in next week for Ishtar, what is tragically Elaine May's fourth and final movie. For now. Dakota Johnson. For now. Hopefully Dakota Johnson will come through for us. Uh, but I, boy, am I ready to talk Ishtar. I've been waiting years to talk about Ishtar on this podcast, David. This is the one. This is the one. I'm so excited. So excited. Um, and uh, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon where we're talking about uh, those uh, Trek movies. We're, we're voyaging home or going beyond or the, entering the final frontier or one of those things. Beam us up. Beam us up. Beam us up on Patreon. Absolutely. Uh, and as always, at the end of the day, uh, this podcast is known for having a wide social circle and also known for its wit and good company. 